Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are kicking off the beginning to our retrospective series of Jurassic Park. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. And today we actually have a special guest with us. Yes, this is, well, I guess I'll let you introduce yourself. Go ahead, I'll just give you the floor. Okay, well, I am Alan's cousin, Thomas Rankin. I, like these two, am a very big movie buff. And this is one of my all-time favorite movies. Definitely top 10, if not top 5. So I'm really excited to be here and uh, putting my input and my opinion in and just talking about what this movie is and its impact on like cinema history. It's phenomenal and I'm excited to get into it. The reason why we brought him on was because this is the biggest Jurassic Park fan that I know. One of them, yeah. yeah. So I, I figured and I talked to Corbin about this too when we were making the uh, the schedule. I was just like, hey, it'd be kind of cool to have a third voice on Silver Screen Guide. But this is our first special guest as well. So uh, we wanted to make it interesting. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And it'd be kind of fun, too, because Tom is studying uh, music composition, so he'll be able to chime in on the score of this movie and kind of its impact as well on not only the movie, but also cinema and stuff like that. Yeah, score is definitely a major part in cinema, so I'm excited to get into that, too. And he actually stuck with the book, unlike me, who quit because it was too (laughs) boring. So he will give us a couple pointers, yeah. Yep, read the first and the second, so that was that's a trip. This is actually the 25th year anniversary for the first film. That's true, yeah. Yeah. This is an old movie, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that until I did the math last night, and I thought, wow, so by the time this movie comes out in June, I believe, because this movie was released June 11th, 1993, so this June will be the 25th anniversary. It's surprising how old this movie is. It doesn't feel like it. I'm almost as old as it. I know. The movie is directed by, of course, the well-renowned Steven Spielberg, who is actually currently up for his 17th Oscar nomination, which is crazy. There's no surprise there. Now, is this our first Spielberg film we're reviewing on a silver screen guide? I believe so, yeah. Oh. Well, the movie was written by Michael Crichton, who also wrote the book. They brought him on. He was friends with Spielberg, and they were talking about uh, possibly adapting his book. But even before then, Crichton was writing a screenplay about this, and it really wasn't met very well with a lot of positive feedback, I guess. So he decided to do the novel, which came out a little bit before this movie, actually. The the time between the release of the book and the movie, it wasn't a whole big time frame because I believe even before the book was published, a number of famous people, Warner Brothers, Tim Burton, apparently, uh, mm. Columbia Pictures, Richard Donner, uh, 20th Century Fox, Joe Dante, they all bid upon their rights, but ultimately Universal got them and uh, handed it off to Spielberg for the adaption. That would have been interesting to see a Tim Burton style of a movie on Jurassic Park. I don't think it would have worked, <laughs> but it would have been so interesting. And rather than a John Williams score, we'd have probably Danny Elfman. Oh, yeah. So that would be that'd be definitely a completely different movie, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. Probably much darker. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I would say so. A, a bit more twisted as well. Might have a musical number here and there. Who knows? Yeah. Ooh, that would be weird. 
<laughs> the dinosaurs begin yeah. singing and be, oh, i can't even think of that david coep helped michael Crichton write the film and david coep is fairly well i say his work is probably well known the man himself i don't know if many people attach his name to what he's done a couple of the things he's directed are secret window which is a stephen king adaptation with johnny depp i i enjoy that movie Premium Rush, he did most recently the Mordecai movie with Johnny Depp, which was a f- big flop. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I didn't see it. I remember it being a flop. I never got into that one, yeah. Well, he also wrote, I guess you could consider another flop. He did write the most recent uh, Mummy movie. Ooh. Yeah, that's too bad. <laughs> he also did Spider-Man, which is another big favorite of mine. So he, he had a big hand in writing the screenplay for that, yes. I believe. That would probably be probably his biggest, yeah. aside from Jurassic Park. That's kind of surprising, though, that he not only helped write Jurassic Park, but also Spider-Man. He's got quite the nostalgic hand in cinema. Mm-hmm. And it's possible he might be writing the new Indiana Jones movie. Mm. Hopefully it's better than Crystal Skull. I, I hope say. so. Who, who knows why we need one? Who knows? It comes out 2020. Harrison Ford's going to be about 80 <laughs> Probably, I can't yep. imagine. Something like that. He He's getting up there in age. Yeah. I mean, I know we talked about him in our 2049 review, but yeah, he's he's getting pretty old. The film stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, Bob Peck, Martin Ferrero, Joseph Mazzello, Ariana Richards, Samuel L. Jackson, Wayne Knight, and according to the after credits, like those prominent ones where they give like all the leads with the screen time, B.D. Wong, who only got like a couple minutes, the, the Asian yeah. scientist guy. Yeah. Who knows? So, Top billing. I don't know. I guess maybe you can answer this, Corbin. Is this a really well-known cast? Um, Richard Attenborough was a famous... British kind of like actor director. He directed Gandhi and got the Academy Award for Gandhi. Okay, yeah. He played Santa Claus on Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Oh, that's true. Back in ninety four, also that's a family classic. I forgot all about that. Wayne Knight is he plays uh, Nedry, the computer guy who sabotages everything. He was pretty famous from Seinfeld. Okay. Oh, wait. He's also in, ah, uh, what movie is it? Toy Story 2. That's right. Toy Story 2. He's the uh, he's the villain, the guy in the chicken suit. Oh, yes. He plays the voice of that guy. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, Sam Neill, I, I don't know. I guess maybe semi-famous. I would say this is probably Sam, Sam Neill's claim to fame. The only other thing I can think of him in, besides this and the third one, is he plays in... Omen 3, The Final Conflict, which I'll leave that for another retrospective, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I, I see that he's also been in uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, which came out pretty recently. That one's a pretty obscure indie film, I know that. I have not heard of it. I've been wanting to watch it, I just haven't really got around to seeing it yet. Strange. And, of course, Laura Dern is the daughter of Bruce Dern, who is a fairly famous actor, and he's still working today. And Laura Dern has been in... A number of things. Most recently, she played in Star Wars The Last Jedi. Oh. As she took over after Leia was incapacitated. No spoilers, but yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, other than that, Laura Dern, I don't know. I know she was in David Lynch's Inland Empire, Wild at Heart, 
two Lynch films. Otherwise, I can't really think of anything else off the top of my head. But yeah, she's she's definitely famous. So there is a couple stars hidden in here that had done things and would go go on to be like much bigger names. Gotcha. Um, or especially around the time they were they were pretty well known for '93. I would say. Yeah. Because I know that Jeff Goldblum, of course, is a big name, and Samuel oh, Jackson is also yeah. a big name. Uh, was I don't think Sam Jackson was as big of a name in '93 than he is mm. now. It was really this in Pulp Fiction. That's right. Yeah, he did do Pulp Fiction, but this, uh, yeah, I think this is one where he was he be, it's kind of began his claim to fame, really. And I have seen B.D. Wong in The Freshman with Matthew Broderick. He also plays Shang in Mulan. Oh, okay. It's a small, mm. smaller, well, not small part, but more of a, that's one of his only voice acting movies. It's really strange that he gets such prominent billing if you watch the credits, though, even though he's barely in the movie. He does return for Jurassic World. He is one of the yeah. kind of scientist, antagonist people of the movie. Right. However, in the book, yeah, he's killed by a Velociraptor. I can specifically remember that. Uh, mm. part of the book so that's that's one part in jurassic world that his character really is isn't the best because in the book he ends up leaving the lab during a uh kind of an evacuation type of ordeal and in the process as he exits the building the velociraptor is actually perched on top of this uh of, on top of the roof and takes him down Completely like spilling out his guts and all that garbage. So obviously Spielberg wouldn't be showing stuff like that, but that's definitely a Michael Crichton, definitely what he put in there. So I was surprised to learn Jurassic Park won three Oscars. Yeah, I know it won Best Special Effects. Yes, uh, Best Special Effects, Best Sound, and Best Sound Effects or Sound Effects Editing. Yeah, well that all that all makes sense because this was. I know that this movie had a huge influence on how CGI was implemented into movies. Like it was the it was the film that really it was it's kind of like the uh, more modern day Tron uh in terms of using its special effects. I know Tron was kind of the first movie to use him using that much to that kind of a degree. And this one is more realistic and seeing more lifelike creatures that are computer animated. That's this movie kind of pi- began to pioneer that and it's really surprising to see this kind of technology in cinema. At 93. The CGI for this time period is really good, too. I love watching it. I would say it has held up fairly well. Oh, yeah. There are one or two scenes that I don't think hold up as well, but mostly the CGI does hold up really well today. You can kind of tell the difference between when it, when it is an animatronic and when it's CGI, but yeah. the line between those two is that's very it's very small. Like, like you said, there are some scenes, and I think we'll get into that a bit later after this, that don't look so great just because it's aged kind of a little bit. I mean, it's back in 93, but even then, uh, looking back at it now, almost 25 years later of CGI that's 25 years old, it still looks so good. Like, mo- almost better than most of the CGI that we use today, which is sad. Yeah. Just I guess just the way that they implement it. Sure, Absolutely. Well, and the music is done by the very famous John Williams, who we know from Indiana Jones and Star Wars and pretty much every Spielberg movie. And he has been nominated in one pretty much since the late 60s. Uh, he's actually up for the Academy Award this year, and this is his 51st Oscar nomination. 
I guess he must be a pretty good composer then. Yeah, I was shocked to find out he's been nominated 51 times. Like, that's insane. Uh, apparently, he's tied for the top. And supposedly, like, Walt Disney or something has is has close to that many nominations or something. I don't know. Right. John Williams is, like, the leading one for nominations, which is insane 51 times. Seriously insane, though, the fact that a composer has so many awards. I mean, all this works. Everyone knows it. You know, everyone knows the Star Wars theme or the Jurassic Park theme. Everyone knows him. He's just, he's been so influential. And this is just one of those claims to fame that his scores are really influential. It's what stands out about him is he's able to take a score and make a melody that's memorable. Um, Unlike, you know, like the throwaway action films you might watch where you just have the same, um, the same chords and the same progressions and the strings and all that kind of stuff. Like he can take themes, he can take emotions and he can throw it all into this melody that people will remember like for ages and ages to come. Like it's, it's great that he's able to do that. And it's really inspiring. It's kind of what I'm trying to do. Um, so he's definitely an inspiration and this is personally my one of my favorite scores from John Williams. Um, Star Wars obviously being my all-time favorite. Can't beat that. Harry Potter is pretty close too. But uh, I'd have to say that Jurassic Park comes in a close second or third for my favorite. He's just, he's got like a specifically melody driven and he keeps it thoroughly. It's, he's, he's an incredible composer. Also, the cinematographer is somebody we just discussed and reviewed alan you will be surprised it, the cinematographer is dean cundy who oh. did the cinematography very early on for halloween 2 oh okay well i can tell you he's improved yeah he has vastly <laughs> improved from the mostly just mediocre run-of-the-mill cinematography yeah now to halloween be 2. fair i guess the cinematography in Halloween 2 wasn't all that bad, but there's a clear difference. There is a clear difference. I just want to point out real quick that the winner of the Oscars for Best Score in 1994, which is when uh, Jurassic Park was up for its nominees, John Williams still won Best Score. This Now, Jurassic Park wasn't nominated for Best Score, but John Williams still won for Schindler's List. Ah. How yes. could you not? That's an incredible score as well. I love yes. that one. And that I believe that's the last time he won since. So it's been 25 years since he has won. Uh, the movie holds an 8.1 on IMDb. Pretty yeah, good. It's very clear that this movie is so nostalgic for a lot of people who grew up in the 90s. Cinema Score gave it an A, not an A plus, but it gave it an A. So yep, that's, that's still a good score, though. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, in IMDb's top rated 198. That's the number it holds. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty solid. I, I don't really see it going anywhere, though, um, off of that list. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. Uh, the budget for the movie was $63 million. Today, from the inflation calculations I did, that would translate to about $106.8 million, which is very interesting because that's nowhere near blockbuster-level budgets of today. Yeah. I mean, it's still a large budget. Yes. But you would expect it to be around 200 or so million. But I guess, I think it also is kind of a running theme is older movies haven't really spent nearly as much money on their budget as newer movies do nowadays, especially ones funded by uh, Hollywood. I think it's really amazing what they're able to do with the bu- with this budget, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
It's clear that most of the budget, I think, went towards those that CGI. Well, it had a domestic box office gross of $357 million, Holy cow. A foreign gross of $626 million with a worldwide total of about $1 billion. That's a lot of money. And I yeah. guess it's very rightly deserved. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, it was number one opening weekend. Oh, yeah. I mean, how could it not yeah. be? Even with the name Spielberg on it, it's, it's got to be a freaking box office hit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but today that would translate to about an 80 million opening weekend, which is... That's still a lot. Which is great. Yeah. Most movies don't do that. Yeah. Surprisingly, when this movie came out in the summer, it had virtually no competition. Really? There was really nothing else. There was like one other movie that came out for the first time that weekend, and it was, I don't know, I didn't didn't count, but it was way down the list. Like, everything had already come out by then... And everything else, I don't know, very forgettable movies that nobody remembers now. So they released it at a great time. Yeah, that's really strange too because that's like right in the middle of the summer. Like June 11th is right in the middle. So, or it's right in the beginning. So it's kind of kind of interesting that this movie had such potential. I'm surprised that other directors didn't push for the summer releases. So that I guess Spielberg was lucky with that one. Who knows? Yeah, I would say probably just it being a Steven Spielberg movie might have had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Other studios probably didn't want to put their movie, especially a incredible looking action movie that's unique that nobody had ever seen before, up against Spielberg for that weekend. That would be my guess. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. No one's really wanting to go up against Spielberg. So if we're going to look at the series and adjust for inflation, because I think that's only fair, this movie still holds the number one spot of the highest grossing of the four so far. Uh, Jurassic World 2, and this is for domestic um, numbers here in the U.S. Jurassic World 2, adjusting for inflation, it's really close. Jurassic Park and Jurassic World are so close. Uh, They nearly made the same amount. Uh, the Lost World is number three, and Jurassic Park 3 is the lowest grossing of the four. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Not only does World have that leg up on that just big nostalgia factor, but right. at the same time, you know, it's got a bunch of more modern names and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that Jurassic World made I th- almost a comparable amount of money to its original. Well, and of course, because it came out so long after the original trilogy and especially the first movie. And it was kind of promising a comeback to the roots. Uh, We'll get into what Jurassic Park three, how audiences felt about that when we get to that review. It's kind of like the star Wars effect when force awakens came out, it came, it got so much money because of that nostalgia factor. And it's like, Oh, this new take on star Wars is more modern take, you know, kind of the same thing. And I guess we'll see what happens when the new one comes out. So you guys watch the trailer. Would you guys, just from the trailer, would you be a part of that opening weekend crowd going to see this movie? What are your thoughts on the trailer? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I would definitely have gone and seen that because I don't think people have seen anything like that, especially during this time. Like Nowadays, you can do anything in CGI. So many ideas have been thrown out. But this, this was something new. 
uh, dinosaurs and man coexisting, that is definitely something brand new to the table. And if I would have saw that at probably early teen, I would definitely have been asking to go see that. Even from that trailer, from that 90s vibe that you have on it, I would have been all over it. Yeah, I'm going to have to say the same thing. The The trailer, I was very surprised by it. I mean, I know we talked about this in the Secondhand Lions review that, at least from my own perspective, for the trailer that I watched, it captures the entire feel of the movie. Mm-hmm. Because if you watch the trailer, I noticed this. The trailer that I wa- that we watched, it has this, almost the same tone shift, just like the movie does, where it's like all this playful stuff at the beginning, like, oh, wow, this is so cool. And then it begins to question itself. And then at the end, it be- kind of becomes a bit more scary. I was very surprised by that. So yeah, I think I totally agree. If this was one that was released when I was a kid, I would be like, wow, that looks awesome. And to be fair, we had never seen CGI used like this like this as like a realistic kind of a scale. The only thing is maybe VeggieTales, but that was released, I think this year in 93 with this first episode. So you would have been, you would have have to have known that it was being released to know that CGI is becoming now a, being used fully as like a, as like a home video because the next thing would be Toy Story, which I think would be a couple years after this. Yeah, Toy Story is 1995, so two years after, and that was a breakthrough in CGI technology as well, so. Yes, uh, the trailer is very interesting because it seems kind of like in that transition period between more of a like classic type trailer with that voiceover with some of the segments and then more modern trailers, it seems like. So it's really interesting, like we watched the trailer with Secondhand Lions and... There was that voiceover in it, and I don't know. Did you guys have the trailer with voiceover, mm-hmm. a little bit yeah. voiceover? Yes. Yeah. So I thought the trailer was interesting. It was kind of a – you could tell it was kind of transitioning to more of a modern trailer where the voiceover would be ditched and the plot would be more explained. I I don't think the the trailer like really gave away too much of the plot at all. Right. The trailer was mostly building intrigue. And like Thomas said about seeing something like on the scale with the dinosaurs and like actually physically interacting with them in that environment that that like had never been seen before. And it's not even really comparable to the very old black and white movies with like the claymation figures where people were either acting in front of a screen or it was clipped like spliced together somehow totally different not even comparable at all right so i would definitely say it's very very groundbreaking and i think the trailer did help people get in there to see the movie because it's very fascinating yeah so uh, yes i would go see it yeah i think too that uh comparing this movie to say another special effects marvel would be king the original king kong uh, that was, oh, yeah. I think, one of the first times that that claymation had been used to that extent. And now we have a, a complete evolution of cinema and the technology behind it. Instead of having uh, physical clay bodies moving around, now we have just computer images, 3D computer images now being generated onto a screen, and they can interact with humans. Like that's mind blowing. I don't think any like visual effects like today will ever beat the animatronics, though that are oh, yeah. in this that are so incredible especially that t-rex is just like jaw-dropping oh yeah yeah it, it's not just the cgi here too we also have the incredible 
uh, animatronics and engineering work that went into this too, just to make it look as good as it does. And it looks so good. Like even 25 years old, this movie looks fantastic. It, it has a bit of age to it, like we said, but it's almost ne negligible. And that T-Rex was such a pain for them to move around that they had to build the studio around it. So that can just show you the immensity of this uh, T-Rex. It's insane. Now, I first saw Jurassic Park, I believe, when I was... Uh, it might have been the second one, honestly, now that I think about it. I, I think the second one might be a little more mild mm -hmm. concerning the intense intensity of sequences. But I can't say for certain because I need to go back and revisit that movie, which... That'll be the next installment in the retrospective, right. of course. But I do remember seeing, I, I believe it was either one or two, when I was six, in our friend's theater room in Texas. And it was really amazing because that guy had built a, you know, pretty much an actual theater in his house. And I had never seen anything like that before. And that kind of inspired us to, like, build our own theater room in our house. That's where we first kind of got the idea. And the guy actually... I don't know how he did it. He was really good with this kind of technology. Have either of you heard of uh, D-Box technology? Uh-uh. Can't say that I have. No. Uh, D-Box is... They build it into movies, and you can buy it and install it in your own home, but certain theaters have this technology. So when there's something like really loud or rumbly in the movie, your seat will rumble and oh, kind of yes. move. Yes, I actually have heard of this. This was back in 2001, and I, this was not available for the home market, I don't believe. And this guy made his own kind of like D-Box technology. So I remember the seats would rumble while watching Jurassic Park, and especially when the water, the water scene, you know, it was, the water would thud, the chairs would rumble. That was so cool. Oh, yeah. man, that's the way to do it. Oh, man, now I'm, now I'm jealous. And that was 2001. That's even more impressive. That's very impressive. Yeah, so that, that gave me a lot of inspiration, and that was really incredible to see yep. at that young age. I got to see it on the big screen in his house. That was so cool. Yeah, oh man. Uh, so are you going to put uh, D-Box seats in, in your theater room too? I believe I will. That's a great <laughs> idea. I'm glad you told me that. That's, that sparked some ideas. It'd be, it'd be nice to. So my story about Jurassic Park is I actually began with the third one. I'll, I'll leave the story for how I got started with it when we get to the third one, because it's actually a pretty funny story. Um, but anyways, that was where I began with it. I can't remember how I actually ended up watching the first one. I think it may have been uh, Thomas here that showed it, that showed it to me. Um, but yeah, I began with the third one and then worked my way through the series eventually. But I was 13 maybe when that... No, it was I was younger than that. I was probably like 10... The, and when we get to the third one, we, it's not exactly meant for 10-year-olds, I would say. But at any rate, that's where I began with it. And I just kind of worked my way through it from there. 10-year-olds nowadays could probably manage. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, but I'm, back I'm sure. in the day, that was that was pretty intense. <laughs> I saw the third one when I was six. Probably shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> it, it was on TV, though. So maybe um, it was edited for television. But I don't know. I just remember seeing it when I was six, and I thought it was awesome. And... I'm fine now. <laughs> the yeah. first time I saw the third one, I was probably the same age as you were, Corbin. I, I, I can tell you right now, I was freaked out. I yeah. it spooked me up a lot. I saw the first one first, um, and then I saw this third one. So it, you know, it brought back Doctor Grant, but I was I was slightly confused because um, there were some things that tied in from the second movie that. 
I wasn't aware of. So, and especially at that age, I didn't pick up on everything. So it was all, all I was seeing when I saw the third one was dinosaurs eating people. So that as a six or seven year old really freaked me out, but I can, I, I could tell you, I liked it, but it really got me. So before we jump into the movie, we want to give a spoiler warning right now that we are going to spoil Jurassic Park, and if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, then we don't want it to be spoiled for you because it is a great experience going in fresh. So make sure to pause the podcast right now, go ahead and watch Jurassic Park, and then come back. We'll still be here. Go ahead and click play so we can get into some spoiler territory and talk about all the juicy details of Jurassic Park. I'd be very surprised if you haven't seen Jurassic Park. It it would be surprising, but you never know. Maybe some of the younger audience has not seen it yet. You never know. Guess that's fair. So the plot of this movie is fairly straightforward. It involves a older British guy, rich guy named... Uh, Richard Hammond, and he has created an island with a theme park called Jurassic Park, where he has been able to engineer dinosaurs from their blood, which was found in the mosquito DNA, and they combine it with uh, the like frog DNA to complete it. And in order for the park to actually open, he has to have uh, two scientists of some sort sign off on the park and so they do go there and we've got a very interesting cast of characters that assemble and there's also another side there's like a couple side plots we'll get into but essentially everything that could go wrong with the park does go wrong and it becomes an utter fiasco and it's basically a fight for your life against these prehistoric uh beasts and it's a really exciting adventure so that's basically the plot it's fairly straightforward but it's really well handled. Yeah. It's kind of funny because even though this plot is pretty straightforward, they talk about some interesting stuff. And um, we'll get to those scenes because especially in the first half, it's all about the ethics of Jurassic Park. And uh, we'll, we'll have a very good discussion on that later. I think the opening of this movie has a great hook. Oh, yes. It's yeah. probably one of the best openings in movie history, I would say. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. I I love how we see the Universal logo, but you don't hear the uh, usual anthem that's playing in the background. It's just these crickets and all these like nature sounds, and it, the Universal logo flies through, and then it slowly rolls into some of the some of the pre credits, and then uh, drums straight into the action. They're doing something before we really know that it's I guess dinosaurs, but they're doing something, and then it escapes and. I think, yeah, this is a great opening. It really hooks you because just like, uh, yeah, something's wrong. Yeah, Alan, like you said with the beginning, how you don't have like your typical universal um, theme. It actually, yeah, like you said, it has the crickets and the nature sounds. It also has like this choral atmospheric kind of voice atmospheric over. And then it has these big drum hits. And that immediately uh, draws you in as the audience and it's not a happy atmospheric sound it's like you get ready it's really really eerie if i can say that it gives me the chills every time and i i distinctly remember watching this opening the first time i saw it i was just i was hooked like i said 
because it's so intense and there's such still like such a mystery to it. And I love how Spielberg slowly reveals these dinosaurs. Clearly, they're these really ferocious things, and you just see like a little bit of their eyes. But it's a really great action scene where this guy is getting dragged into this pen by this fierce, you don't know what it is, just some fierce beast. And uh, there's the close-up of his mouth yelling, shoot her. It's so intense right off the bat. I love how Spielberg, and he does this repeatedly throughout this movie, is how how he reveals information. Because it starts off with just like these leaves just kind of moving around and, and like an overhead shot. And then you see, I think it go, cuts to one one worker in this like reaction shot. And it cuts back and then you see the leaves rustling some more and then the cage shows up. And then it shows that there are more than just one worker. There's like a bunch of them there. And then as the scene kind of progresses, it's edited in such a way where information is slowly being given to the audience. You begin to realize, okay, this is what's happening. It's It's something's happening. Something very serious is going on here because something, whatever is in this cage, which I mean, at this point it's probably very clear that it's a dinosaur just be given the name and stuff, but whatever it is must be pretty dangerous because there's a lot of precautions being taken right now. And yeah, then we get the dinosaur, the guy just being sucked into the cage and um, the man yelling, shoot her, shoot her. And you see, and you hear a bunch of uh, sounds going off of guns shooting and then it just cuts. And then that's it. That's the beginning scene. It's like, what did what just happened? Because this was supposed to be just a jolly old good time with a bunch of dinosaurs, but we're taking this really serious take. Like, what in the world? And I think it's a very good foreshadowing for what is going to happen later. In the scene right after this, we meet a lawyer character, which, honestly, I never really understood his connections and roles until this viewing. And maybe you two can kind of help me out a little more because... His explanation, I feel, is in kind of just a couple quick dropped lines. Like, if you don't have the subtitles on, because I, I put them on after this because I thought, wait, I'm missing something here. This So this guy isn't Hammond's lawyer. He, like, represents the investors or something. He basically, he's telling them that they're being sued by the worker that got taken in by this dinosaur, which we, if you go back and watch, you realize this is the exchange from the raptors to the raptor pen. Like they're taking it from the labs. They have just finished genetically breeding it basically and uh, finishing it up. And then now they're taking it to the cage for the exchange where, you know, the accident happens and the, uh, the guy who's yelling, shoot her. You'll, you know, we will talk about him in a little bit here when his characters uh, come back. But basically, what Donald Gennaro, that's his name, he does represent the investors. He's basically a lawyer in most sense. That's what John Hammond refers to him as. He is super skeptical about this park. He he pretty much wants to see it fail almost, as you can see it. Um, so when he goes to the digging site, you can see that he's, he's throwing a lot of threats around, telling, yeah, this worker who most likely died, they don't really distinguish that the the company engine is being filed for a lawsuit, as he says. But yeah, he just he he gives this vibe that, you know, people find annoying and he's like this little stumbling idiot. Like as you could see him walking up the rocks as he's trying to talk and he trips over himself and yeah, that's just basically Donald Gennaro's character and you know he he develops as the movie goes on and we'll get into that i did feel when they were down in this mines and wherever they were costa rica or something 
that that scene did have an Indiana Jones feel to it, like the beginning mm-hmm. of Indiana yeah. Jones. It's very clear that uh, Spielberg is he he likes his Indiana Jones. He kind of comes back for that. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Indiana Jones, did you know that for Doctor Grant's character, which is who we're introduced to next, he wanted Harrison Ford to play Doctor Grant. And Harrison Ford turned it down. He said, I don't think that would be the right role for me. And then after seeing the movie, he said, yeah, I made the right choice. Yeah. Uh, I think I remember hearing about this. I may have forgotten it, though. But yeah, that make, I do remember hearing something about that. Sam Neill as Dr. Grant, I think, was an excellent choice. And we'll get into his character when we get to his opening scene, obviously. But Sam Neill, I think, was just a top-notch uh, he had a top-notch performance in this movie, I think. Now, my question is, do you guys get the vibe that Grant and Ellie are are a couple, like a romantically involved couple? Yes, I do in this movie. In the book, however, she is his student. So it's not, there's no love connection in the book. It's like, I think she's like mid-20s as he's maybe 40 or 30, but in the book, there's no connection like that. They're just, you know, she's along for the ride to study as uh, he has invited her along. Yeah, I would, I think I'll say the same thing. Uh, there's a, some connection. And remember the first time I watched it, I just assumed that they were totally a couple. Uh, I guess it wasn't until I think later viewings, I think this one actually that I noticed, wait a minute, maybe... Maybe they're not. Maybe there's something there, but it's not necessarily defined as a relationship. And I like that it's kind of keep kept under wraps whether what the relationship actually is. Um, it's clear that they've worked together for a long time. It's very, very evident in this movie. But yeah, in terms of a romantic relationship, it doesn't really say. It's kind of, it's it's very subtle what it is or isn't. And I mean, what we do we do we do go on and find out that they do develop more of a relationship later on in the movie. But yeah, for the most part, it's kind of kept under wraps. It's They work together, obviously, but in terms of relationship, I don't know. There is a scene where one of the characters we'll get into asks if Ellie is available and Dr. Grant like all of a sudden gets defensive and says, why? He's like, oh, I'm sorry, you two are. And he's like, he just immediately just goes, yes. So obviously, Dr. Grant has something with Ellie as far as we know. It's not... It doesn't take away anything from the movie itself. It's not distracting. It's just something that is part of their characters, I believe. Yeah, I always assumed also that they were involved, but it seems like Grant is a little more dedicated to his work, so it's not like he has a lot of time to settle down. Like, that's really not his priority is settling down. He's just, I guess, enjoying whatever they have at the moment. So upon this viewing, I I saw that a lot more. Definitely. And you will see that in the third movie. I won't get into it because obviously we're focused on the first, but in terms of the relationship between the two, you can definitely tell that Dr. Grant and his work is definitely going to be put before a relationship of any sort. And soon after this, while Grant, I think it's like funny, but a little harsh when he's talking to the kid about the way the velociraptor would attack you and eat you essentially we learned that the we get a bit of foreshadowing learned the velociraptor attacks come from the side not the front and that's good foreshadowing um i know putting down in my notes the clever girl scene i remember the scene from when i watched it before 
And I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense now why this scene exists is because we get that it's, you know, Chekhov's gun. It kind of comes back around where you introduce something here where, you know, Dr. Gr- Dr. Grant says they're going to come and they attack from the sides when you're focused towards the towards the front. And then later on, the clever girl scene, um, he's about to shoot one of the velociraptors. And then another velociraptor shows up on his on his left and he just looks at it and goes, clever girl and then he dies right there because uh yeah Chekhov's gun you know the, the scene with the kid that little McGee and me I don't know if you guys have seen that old uh, 90s Christian yeah uh little I don't know low budget Christian TV show about a kid and a cartoon character who learn about Jesus down like through little life uh life stories yeah it's it's super cheesy super 90s well that kid is the same kid that basically is the stereotype for every 90s little dweeb so um yeah this kid um i think its purpose in this movie is to show dr grant's true passion for these creatures um both in the fossil and the the history of them the next thing we have i always felt was a little confusing and that is when the helicopter lands to me, this seems kind of like a red herring in a way, although I believe what probably happens is they just get in the helicopter with Hammond and go take off. But I thought I always thought Hammond was landing in the helicopter, but then it was it just kind of seemed like this distraction, like, no, you know, we're distracting you while he just snuck in to <laughs> raid your fridge or whatever, and you can go talk with him. <laughs> that part always threw me off a little bit, but I think I get it. Even as a young viewer i found that kind of weird because you never see him exit the helicopter i don't know how he arrives without anybody really noticing other than helicopter but you know it's not super important because the scene in the trailer adds to the next step in the movie in the next part and i think that this is a great introduction to Hammond's character and i'm gonna save my thoughts until a little bit later but it kind of goes to show the irresponsibility of Hammond. yeah and he just decides to land right in the middle of the of the dig and of course that could have ruined these uh these fossils and you know dr grant is going frantically trying to get those covered and get them covered and everything like that so i think it's a very good a very good introduction because it's just like what what idiot you know would just decide to land here you know and then we find out later that it's dr hammond and he's got this new idea and and i think this is a great introduction for his character yeah john hammond he's definitely a goofy guy as you can see like the very first scene you see of him is when dr grant comes in and kind of confronts him saying what are you doing he immediately turns around and pops the cork off of some kind of alcoholic beverage and it just kind of goes flying and dr grant's like hey we were saving those he says for today, I guarantee it. He's just like, he's full of himself. He he knows that he's successful. He's just this goofy old man who's just kind of shows up out of nowhere. Obviously, uh, Dr. Grant and Ellie, who comes in and kind of accidentally says something she kind of regrets um, before knowing who he really is. They know who he is. He funds their digs, but they just haven't met him. He's just a sponsor uh, who has a lot of money and who is high in society because who else can just purchase an island, you know what I mean? He's a little different in the book, right? From what I remember, yeah. I believe in the book, he, from what I remember, he was not as happy. He was just more of like a rude type Slightly, of person. yeah. From what I remember, um, it's been... It's been about six or seven years since I've read the book, so a lot of a lot of the characters are hazy. I can remember big moments and... Uh, a lot of um, main characters like 
the group who that you know is on the island stranded other than uh hammond himself or some of the minor minor characters but i can tell you that um yeah his character is definitely different in the movie than the book by this point in the movie we're getting introduced to a lot of characters one after the other and i'm thankful that the screenplay writers realize that if they keep on this trajectory without doing anything to kind of pique the audience's interest and kind of alert our attention, then we would probably begin to get bored. But the next scene I really enjoy, and it's there's a couple scenes in this movie that are really memorable. And I remember this one because it's so funny. It shows that this movie also, even though it is an action movie and there is like a lot of ferociousness to that action, there's also some pretty funny lines in this movie in funny situations. So I call this the spy scene where Dotson comes and he says, you shouldn't use my real name. And Wayne, Wayne Knight's character is like, Dotson, we've got Dotson here. <laughs> See, nobody cares. And... I thought that was really funny and they don't really bore us with the details because they know they're not really important later on. It's just that one of this guy that works with uh, Hammond is going to sell him out because he's a really greedy guy, like kind of this gluttonous, greedy yep. guy. And I like his introduction too. He's at this yeah. restaurant just chilling there and he's got so much food around him. It just kind of, yeah, like you said, he kind of, <laughs> kind of gluttonous and stuff like that. And he's, very money hungry and he leaves the check for the guy for Dodson that just kind of shows up and he's just like you take care of the check right and just you know little hobbles <laughs> off and, and stuff like that don't get cheap on me Dodson that was him yeah Dodson a little bit about him he is one of the workers in Biosyn which is a company that is kind of going against InGen his character actually in the book it, he's introduced in the second one, and instead of putting him in the second movie, they have another guy. Um, so instead of being an antagonist, he's just this minor character that they added in in the screenplay. Um, yeah, he, his, he's just definitely using uh, Dennis and Nedry as this thief that's going to take the embryos so they can start copying off the idea and probably create their own attraction. And I like how focused this movie is, too, because it begins with Dr. Grant and Ellie, and they're just working, you know, and then um, Hammond shows up and starts, I guess, kind of kicks the plot in the gear. And then it cuts to the villain, and it's like, okay, so here's the villain, what he's going to do. And so now we know both motivations for both sides of the story, the protagonists and the antagonists, and we know that uh, we know that they're going to hit heads one time, sometime in this movie. And then immediately right to the scene, we cut to the helicopter and we have one more character added to the list and it's Jeff Goldblum. And we don't even really get how he got there. I mean, we kind of get some dialogue, but for the most part, it's very focused and doesn't really stray off anywhere else where it doesn't need to go, I think. And I think that that's kind of refreshing just to kind of have that focused feel. Yeah, at this point, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, Dr. Ian Malcolm, who is a chaotician, um, he was not invited by John Hammond like Dr. Grant and Ellie were. Uh, he was invited by Donald Gennaro. Donald Gennaro's kind of playing a stronger game. They're getting another source that is very high of himself and very opinionated. And, you know, they're all introduced to the island. And yeah, I love this scene because Ian Malcolm, he is a character. He's one of my favorite characters. Um, his acting nowadays is not as... How could I say it? 
He, in nowadays, his characters that he plays isn't as B.A. as he is in this movie. He is this cool-looking uh, lady killer in this movie with the sleek back hair and, the, like, the leather jacket. Nowadays, he's just old and a confused old man who's, like, who's really funny nowadays. Like, you see him in, like, Independence Day Resurgence, which is the prequel to the first movie he was in. He definitely loves to take this role of Dr. Malcolm, and he's just the same in the book. I can remember specifically. I really enjoyed the character. I would say when we were first initially introduced to him here, we've had time to kind of establish who these other characters are, but as for his character exposition, I felt it to be a little weak because I don't think it's made explicitly clear why he has, not just because like the lawyer brought him along, but what does he have to add? Like, why is he an authority to sure. be talking about this? I feel like they could have clarified that. Yeah, a and I can agree with that. I think that's a pretty valid criticism. Of course, he becomes a very big player in, I guess, kind of the naysayer against John Hammond later in a very in some very important scenes and, and stuff. But yeah, I think you're right about that, that his introduction could have been handled a bit better. Maybe if we were to edit in his scene of him being invited onto this trip, would have kind of pulled away from the focus that is in the beginning of this movie. But yeah, I, I do think that maybe they could have added a bit more reason for his character to be there. In retrospect, I guess it makes a little bit a little bit of sense. But yeah, I think I think I agree with you on that one. We finally get the main Jurassic Park theme, I would say, when we get that really wonderful pan up of the helicopter and the island. It's just such an iconic score and theme definitely like just immediately creates that sense of adventure like you're on this really amazing adventure you're going into the island with them and i'm really shocked this score did not get oscar nominated yeah I am too same i'm very surprised that's why i looked it up to wonder if maybe you got a nomination no not even a nomination for the score i mean john williams still won like i said for schindler's list but uh, yeah interesting stuff that he didn't get uh, a nomination for this one I mean, it's such an iconic theme now. And I think this is just an incredible introduction for them, for the characters. And we are put in the position of the characters. Like when we, when they finally see the dinosaurs, they have no idea what they're going to see. And we really don't know. And I think it's good. The trailer like showed like brief kind of snippets and stuff of the dinosaurs, but it really saved like these scenes for the movie where the camera work is incredible, mixed with the score, the acting, and I was really impressed with Spielberg's sense of scope, how oh, yeah. he makes these dinosaurs feel real, like how he moves the camera up from their perspective, like they have to look up to see him so high, and we have to do the same, and I don't know, I was just really blown away yeah. by that. Once again, going back to the way that Spielberg reveals information, just like he did in the opening, where he shows you a little bit and then a bit more and then a bit more until you get the grand scope of the at the very end of the scene, the, the grand scope of it all. And it, it's, it's, you see where exactly you're headed. And then that's when the climax of the scene hits and you know, that big theme comes in, comes in and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's a feeling that really only Spielberg can create. And that's kind of why he's become such a renowned director now is because of the way that he's able to handle emotions and and like this grand sense of like awe basically yeah i totally agree and i love the diversity in characters that we have here we have the inspector guy who's kind of wanting to sue him and for all of his money we have the mathematician who's coming in to kind of give a more reasonable explanation 
Uh, we have the two archaeologists that are coming here. You know, I love all these viewpoints that we're going to have. And when we get to the dinner scene a bit later, we get to see all those viewpoints clash. And we get to see what exactly is the real intent and what is, you know, what's the right way of going about Jurassic Park. And I thought this was handled so well. The diversity of characters is definitely well made in this movie. And I love seeing them all communicate with each other and have their little egos clash every once in a while, especially with Ian Malcolm. He clashes with everybody, it seems. So, yeah, I love these characters a lot. Once they get into the park, this is where we kind of get into the exposition-heavy moment of the movie where I thought it was handled fairly well because this is a theme park and it is a ride. So I think the handling of explaining the dinosaurs was fairly organic explanation. Um, I do think it gets a little confusing when they talk about filling in it with frog DNA. Why would they do that? That that uh, completely blew past me during my younger viewing days. That was something I never really caught on to until I was older and I could kind of understand that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I do like how they use the ride to give exposition and to kind of explain because rather than having like a scientist just fill them all in, that's going to put people to sleep. If you do that, I think this ride that Hammond created with Mr. DNA and the interactions like showing, uh, uh, just the different areas of the lab. Um, I think that was a pretty decent way to show what they're doing and how they're doing it. Otherwise, you might have uh, problems with the exposition and people might not catch on as easy. Um, but yeah. And I think that in terms of explaining how they were able to create the dinosaurs, uh, I don't know how realistic this movie is, but it makes it feel like it's realistic yeah that's a very very scientifically heavy and almost it seems accurate that's what's scary about it like we it seems like we can do this in real life right. um i don't think we've ever attempted even if we did i don't think we've ever put it to really heavy use but um yeah the research behind it that michael Crichton's done um, he really, really makes this feel realistic in a science-heavy base, and I applaud him for that, and that makes the movie seem very real. Yeah, and in terms of, okay, so in terms of the frog DNA question that you had, Corbin, um, so essentially, they got the DNA from the mosquitoes that were trapped in, this, in the tree sap after they sucked the blood from the dinosaurs that they found in, in the ground, right? So the DNA, the blood that they got wasn't complete. And uh, no, I think it was the cloning process of the DNA wasn't complete. So they used the frog DNA to fill in the gaps, which I think if I'm not mistaken, frog DNA is the closest thing we have to dinosaur DNA. So they use that just to kind of fill in the gaps and make it a complete DNA strand. And that's how they were able to clone them, basically. It's mainly because frogs have, you know ancestors that date back to this time periods and whatnot you don't really have much animals spe or well species i should say that really date back other than like i don't know alligators and sharks but even those things like if we're like looking at land animals frogs would definitely be um a sizable choice amphibians and whatnot okay this might be kind of a funny thing to say but when they rebel against the ride and they're just like nah forget it they just like 
push the railings off and they go check it out. For some reason, that always bugged me a little bit because they're like these invited guests. And he's like, hey, come along with me and let's talk about this. And they're like, we're just going to go explore by ourselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, like even Dr. Grant asks, like, can't we see the unfertilized eggs? Or like, how do you um, disrupt the uh, splitting of mitosis or something like that? You know, something really mm-hmm. sciencey that only they would understand. Um, you can see John Hammond even say to them, yeah, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to that. You know, he kind of eases mm-hmm. them down. We'll get to that. However, all three of them just to go against that. Like, you know, I want to see this now. And they, right. they completely bust the ride and get out of there to head to the labs to see the, really the deep behind the things or behind the scenes. I think it's very interesting too, because he acts like they act like children in this movie yeah. and they kind of just go against John Hammond a lot of the time. And, I think for good reason, too, because mm-hmm. this is so much up their alley that they're just like, why can't I see this now? And so they decided to, they decided to just, you know, break the ride and they push the bar up and they walk right into the into the cloning chambers and stuff like that. And they get to see firsthand uh, what the scientific process is behind this. And I think this is also kind of a good introduction to maybe even some foreshadowing where John Hammond, want, John Hammond wants things to go a certain way. And then they decide that, no, this is the way it should go. And they decide to kind of break from whatever he's telling them and they go on their own way, which I think is maybe even better in, in terms of uh, the ethics of it all and, and, and stuff like that. And we get to see them really want to explore what they want to explore and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting kind of relating the, all the characters to children. In a sense, they do know uh, they do know more about this kind of stuff than John Hammond does. Yeah. So putting that into view it brings up a very interesting discussion and idea of humanity's like relationship with each other but also with a higher power and that higher power could be some kind of you know creator architect type deal but also just with creatures that are so much more powerful than them even though they're intellectually more powerful the creatures are clearly physically more powerful and it is interesting because we know grant doesn't care for kids at all but nevertheless they're constantly running off like kids during they're trying to have like serious discussions i feel like and they're like no we're gonna go off and do our own thing we're really excited about like a kid in a candy store but then again malcolm brings up a good point where uh john hammond he says you wield the genetic power like a kid with his dad's gun you don't really have any discipline. You just studied what was done before and patented it. And I thought, oh, that's a great point. But nevertheless, in a way, everybody's in over their heads, not just the young kids of this movie. They're all in over their heads because they're just clearly tapping into a power that is really beyond their ability to control. Right. Oh, yeah. And there are uh, there are a lot of scenes that they dive deep into this this question of power, and there's that dinner scene, and we'll get there. And I think that that's where our bulk of our discussion of the ethics of all of the uh, dinosaur DNA and all this kind of stuff is going to come into play. Because, like you said, and when they also kind of say this in the scene, that's a lot of power for a human to have to have not only be able to clone, but also mess with, like, not only be able to pull the DNA, the old DNA of dinosaurs out of the uh, mosquitoes and stuff like that, but also be able to manipulate that and actually create dinosaurs and all sorts of stuff. That's 
because now you're messing with genetics. You're messing, you're messing with nature. And that gets into a whole slew of, of ethics problems and, and things like that. And it's kind of interesting, too, that this movie brings this up in 1993 because cloning wasn't very big back then. I, I think it was a brand new technology that probably just come out within the decade. And um, now it's starting to become realized because, yeah, we have things like Dolly the Sheep and, and, and stuff like that where there are animals that were cloned, like legit. And now we get to see this movie kind of take that into a more realistic stand, a, a, bit, of, a bit of a different avenue and say, oh yeah, well, we can bring back dinosaurs. And that's a bigger deal because dinosaurs have been extinct. And now we have, now if we just have the DNA, we can, we, this is more likely, more likely that we can de- reconstruct the DNA um, and make it work and clone it and everything. It's, it's a very, very interesting discussion that they have. And I love Malkin's character and how realistic he is. And he's like, uh, no, um, you can't wield this power because that's insane. And he kind of gives the, you know, he brings in the chaos theory and all sorts of stuff like that. And it's, it's, I love, honestly, I think Malcolm is my favorite character in this story just because of the realism that he brings. And he's just like, no, this is the mathematical side and the chaos theory and all this. He brings in like the hard science into everything and really grounds this movie, I think. And I found that to be, I found his, found his character to be very engaging, especially this time around. And everything he said was just so, so rich with knowledge. And I found it to be very interesting. I was surprised by, especially upon this viewing, by how, I guess, thoughtful would be a good word that Malcolm is. Because he is set up as a very kind of carefree, uh, Hammond uses the word rock star in a way. But nevertheless, he's going to be plausible about his profession, you know, and giving him honest feedback and not just saying, oh yeah, this is awesome, this is so cool. Because I could easily see the character going in that way because we really don't know much about him except just what we've seen from the outside but I was really surprised to see that he did go that way, saying it's it's really impossible for you to just think that you can control everything and keep it in check and just almost wield the power of God by creating these things. And I did also like how he kind of brought up, well, these creatures went extinct for a reason. Right. There's a purpose that they're not here on the earth anymore. This is clashing two different eras of time in a way they obviously weren't meant to to go together right yeah it's and it's very clear that you know that you said these two eras of times were maybe not even supposed to be together in the first place you know they're you have to bring into the uh the discussion of natural selection and, and the evolution right. and all sorts of stuff like that you got all that you got to deal with and nest nature and all of itself and all this kind of stuff and now we have humans messing with it, and what is that going to result in? And even though they made all the dinosaurs female and made it so if they were to leave the island, then they would die because they're missing an amino acid that they need for uh, survival that the that the right. island gives to them. So they can try and contain the dinosaurs as much as they want, but like we saw in the helicopter scene um, or later when... Or later in this scene, I guess, with uh, with Malcolm and with that line of uh, nature finds a way, you know. Life finds Li- a way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Where he says life finds a way. And that's very true because we see, you know, and kind of foreshadowed into the uh, the helicopter scene with Dr. Grant where he takes the two female ends of the belt buckle and just kind of ties it in a knot. And he's fine, you know. So, you know, we have... 
we have that nature, these nature themes coming in and all this kind of stuff about messing with it. Like, should we? Could we? Why would we? You know, all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it's. I think it's a, such a good discussion to have. I do like the dinner scene, um, especially because Malcolm has a lot of, well, one, good points, and two, like, memorable lines. Uh, the first one being, sci- your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think that if they should. Um, and the other one is when he kind of confronts Hammond about the whole thing and tells him uh, what you call discovery I call the rape of the natural world. He brings up all these good points. Uh, and Hammond, is you can definitely see he's starting to have a strong dislike for Malcolm because he's getting shut down constantly by this guy. There's no pleasing him. Uh, the only sense of pleasing that you see from Malcolm through most of any of the movie um, is the first time he lays eyes on the the brontosaurus or the brachiosaurus whichever species that is um he says you did it you crazy guy you did it um that scene is the only scene you see of malcolm in astonishment which goes to show that everybody can be in complete awe of these things and could completely miss the meaning and the idea behind it um, you obviously have Dr. Grant and Dr. Ellie Sattler. They talk to Hammond at different parts and how it's kind of a bad idea with their reasoning. Malcolm, obviously, throughout the entire movie, giving um, this is a bad idea, giving that vibe off of. But, yeah, he, there's only one scene where he shows awe and amazement. Everybody in this scene, uh, everybody in this movie, I should say, has at least one moment where they're, like, completely engulfed in this idea uh even Gennaro who's skeptical at first you see him uh you see him uh see the brontosaurus in first glance and he says we're gonna make a fortune with this place so everybody is kind of blindsided by this uh new concept that they have that they don't see the bigger picture yet but they end up seeing especially at the dinner scene um, that this is a bad idea. The only person who really does not start to see this, obviously, is its creator, John Hammond, who's very irresponsible, as we've started to learn at this point. I think that I would have preferred if we could have got a little more character or motivation from Hammond as to exactly why he has done this, because you raised a really good point, Thomas, about how they all have these like moments of awe and they all have reasons for either like being in awe and then they all have reasons for being inquisitive and questioning and they all have motivations for why or why not they think the park and the cloning of the dinosaurs is a good idea but I don't feel we really get that from Hammond he doesn't really seem like this really greedy money guy where that's just all he wants is the money like the lawyer because he kind of rebuffs the lawyer when he says that but i don't know we'd never really got much from him i know he funds paleontologists what is his connection to dinosaurs why does he do it what is his company engine i think we could have used a little bit more but that's only if you, I guess, really think about it, because I didn't think about it until right now, really. Right away with Hammond, you don't know his um, reasoning behind it, but you do learn it when he and Dr. Grant have, er, doc, excuse me, when he and Dr. Sattler um, have a discussion at a table in kind of like the lounge area or the restaurant. 
this is after like the big plot unfolds. Um, it's down the it's down the road, but we'll we'll get to it. I will say that this um, table discussion that she and him have um, gives us the reason why he did this, why he's doing this. Um, so we'll get to that. Remind me to go into that because um, the meeting that they have in the um, little conference room they have, which is lit up so Spielberg like John Hammond definitely has a reason behind this whole thing and we will get into that right now the audience can't see it we just see this happy guy that wants this big park to be functioning and to please others who doesn't really know what he's doing yet and I think that that's also a very good point to bring up is that um at, at least so far in this movie when we get to this point, when Malcolm says uh, the line that it's not really a matter of can we do it, but should we do it, you know? Um, I think that that's really, at least as far as we know in the movie, that's just, that's Hammond's uh, drive. That's that's his want to do this, to open this park is because, oh, we have the technology and now we can make it into a theme park, you know? I don't really think it's about the money in this movie. It's more or less just the fact that he's even able to do it in the first place. And we kind of see that um, the irresponsibility that Heyman has throughout this entire movie where uh, he just, he can do things, you know? He, he, he has this drive to do things. And I think that Heyman very much re resembles uh, humanity and our curiosity to to learn and do new things and now we've gotten into genetics and this is when the movie begins to take a bit more of a cynical role against humanity where it's just like our curiosity kind of gets the best of us and now luckily John Hammond survives in this movie but he does learn a very valuable lesson and that's that just because you can doesn't mean you should do it. I mean, now we have the technology. I mean, I believe I would believe we have the technology to do what this movie's presenting us, but that doesn't mean we should do it. And just because we have the potential and we know how doesn't make it a great idea. And there are a lot of ethical issues that kind of go into this discussion of um, genetics and messing with genetics and all sorts of stuff. And it's. I think this is this is honestly this dinner scene with them all sitting around. It's a great, great scene just because you get all the, I think this is when all the viewpoints kind of come to a head and they all kind of talk about what they think. And I love that John Hammond is just wanting someone to say yes the entire scene. He goes, we go from one, each person on the table and the only person that says yes is the inspector guy. And Donald Gennaro. Yeah. Gennaro is the only guy who says yes to him and everybody else is like, uh, I don't think so. Especially Malcolm and we get that clash between Malcolm and Hammond where their characters are just they are complete polar opposites they and i clash. love that interaction and it's and especially dr Grandin even kind of says the exact same thing as hammond or as uh as malcolm where she's like maybe not the best idea and i love this this talk of power where they begin to discuss you know what exactly why should a human have this you know this kind of power to mess with genetics and mess with nature in this kind of a in this kind of a way it's it's a very, very interesting discussion. I love this scene so much. And then we go into uh, how Grant even puts his input. I think it's funny because we start off with Gennaro being the skeptical one, not wanting this to work, to the only one besides Hammond at the table that really wants this to work, uh, kind of putting a price tag on it already. 
But Hammond kind of shows a lighter side saying no. And he kind of gives us the vibe that he's not a bad guy. He's just completely irresponsible. Um, Gennaro says we could charge people $2,000 and they will pay it. Hammond chimes in and says, no, I don't, um, I don't want to cater to the rich. Um, this park can go out to anybody who wants to enjoy it. So you see that he's got something there and he does, like Alan had said, represent humanity in a way because our curiosity does have consequence if we're not careful. And then Dr. Grant finally has his say. He's the last person to uh, have say in this before the scene changes. He uh, he claims that the world has changed so radically and that we're all just running to catch up. He puts a good point there. Um, kind of what we had said about how humanity has got this power and how we're wielding it. Um, in a way that's just not responsible enough and that we got to be careful with it. As he says, two species separated by 65 million years were not meant to coexist. Uh, he does have a point there. Um, Malcolm had brings, had brought up that nature had selected the dinosaurs to go extinct and they did. Um, man comes and now it's our time to, you know, be alive and walking the earth because evolution has planned it out that way. Um, we obviously grow with what we have around us with the species that we coexist with nowadays. We've learned to adapt with those. But why are we now bringing these ferocious giant creatures that once existed now into our time period, that's just completely playing God and going against what evolution's been doing over the years. And that's what Ian Malcolm is like really trying to say in this kind of stuff. Um, and it brings up a lot of good points. And now Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant are seeing that. And the only one who doesn't see, obviously, is Hammond and the blood-sucking lawyer, as Hammond refers to it now, because he didn't always want Gennaro's opinion. He wanted, like, everybody's opinion. I, I would say from an ethical standpoint, this is unethical because it's really not creating to benefit mankind or for any, like I said, any beneficial purpose. It's mostly just to play God and be like, look, I can resurrect ancient species just because I can, because uh, I have that power. So I would say just because it's from that standpoint, yeah, that is pretty unethical. It's just a little bit of a megalomaniac in a way where it's too, it's just too dangerous, not just for like the physicality of it but for i would say the actual person and then we see this technology may fall into other hands through um dennis's greedy ways so we can see this could go off in many different ways and just wreak a bunch of havoc on the earth and whatnot uh kind of makes me think of planet of the apes in a way where in the first movie they're using that technology to mm -hmm. it seems noble to cure alzheimer's but it ends up they're just tampering with nature too much in a way they really shouldn't be and we see the catastrophic consequences of that action uh something else i wanted to say real quick is in this dinner scene we get uh, I think it's really good character setup between uh, Malcolm and Grant because we see Malcolm, even though he's right, 
he constant and he even says that line later which i really love when he says i hate always being right well clearly he's not always being right because not too long after that he decides to light that flare which causes the t-rex to go after him and causes the death of the lawyer so we see that malcolm always shoots from the hip and he's just like says stuff so quickly and we see grant always like is thinking about stuff i think that is a little bit to his detriment though because i think grant tends to overthink things and like when we see later those dinosaurs are running towards them i'm like they're clearly running towards you you need to just stop being in such awe and thinking about it and run so just by those like minimal um just by the acting, I would say, it, it really sets up their characters well for later on and kind of shows why they make certain choices. Yeah, and I think from, because uh, I did a little bit of research into some uh, ethics of cloning and, and things like that, and it's it's very clear that the general consensus, not only for the movie, but also those who are kind of going out that are, I guess aren't really considered scientists, they're, they're, the, the general consensus is it's not good. And I think that I think that we all kind of seem to agree with that is just because we can doesn't mean we should, you know, that whole debate. So some of the things that I did, I looked up is the European Commission had asked the European group on ethics, what exactly are the ethics towards animal cloning? And they kind of said that they don't really have a stance on it. It's kind of hard for them to give a justification for animals just because they can, you know. And now I, we have seen this before. Mainly cloning is used for agriculture and cloning like plants and, and stuff like that. We see that, you know, which is one story. But when you're messing with, you know, life, like um, I know that there's a story of a gal her kitten died and so she spent something like fifty thousand dollars and they were able to clone the cat and um it was able to live again now that's a completely different story because when it, when you compare it to plants because that's like a, a that's like li something living something that's has as actively thinking and perceiving information and now we have that walking around that's a complete copy of something else which is not natural we're not supposed to have that kind of power and and, and things like that. It's, it's it's very it's a very interesting discussion because like you, like this movie kind of brings up what are we supposed to do with that kind of power? Like how do we handle that? When we bring into the fact that science is now so advanced for us for us humans that we can almost do anything we want, it's it's scary. I will say that. I think that this movie brings up a very interesting discussion that is very realistic because it's on the brink of becoming a thing where maybe we even want to clone humans and which and in, in which case everyone's totally against that that one's that's not something that science scientists are kind of curious about it but i don't think it's very much on the back burner i think it's kind of on the back burner like maybe we shouldn't touch that you know so yeah there are a lot of ethical issues that come into this movie and i love that this movie ex talks about that too it's very open to ethical issues being discussed in this movie and, and, and stuff like that. And I love how uh, Malcolm is the kind of the character, the bearer of bad news for Hammond, where he kind of talks about, who gives you the right to have this kind of power? And then Ellie also a little bit later in that dinner scene, uh, in the ice I call it the ice cream scene, um, she talks about that same kind of thing. And that's, that's when John Hammond's character begins to realize. But yeah, John Hammond is 
kind of like a kid. Like he found something, he's got a new toy that he really wants to try out, but he doesn't really stop, step back and ask himself, is this ethical? Because he has the money and he has everyone saying yes. And you, I think he only surrounds himself with people who are saying yes to him all the time. Because even the scientists, and I think Malcolm kind of brings this up, even the scientists who work here, nobody like questioned you on this. And so, I don't know. It's it's very, very interesting. This movie, I love this scene with them all at dinner and they're talking and, and they have all these ethical debates just kind of going around the circle. And I think it really opens up uh, even debate in and of itself just about cloning and... and bringing back species and messing with messing with genetics and all sorts of stuff yeah and i would say the blade runner films kind of deal with that like ethical issue and i know it's not really cloning but in a way it is i would say they deal with that on like a philosophical level so if you're like more interested in that i recommend those and we did review both of those movies and also i mean honestly this is a very similar to what mary shelley brought up in 1818 with her book frankenstein where Victor Frankenstein is a scientist and he has the power to basically create life, but it's so unnatural and so wrong just because he could do it doesn't mean he should. And I think honestly, they're, they're kind of more similar than it at first you would think about between like this story and Frankenstein. Um, they all do kind of similar things in that capacity, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually didn't think about Frankenstein in this movie. That makes that actually makes a lot of sense. Well, and then especially, I it's probably more heavy-handed in Jurassic World with the hybrid mm-hmm. yeah. dinosaur, much like Frankenstein. He's a hybrid of lots of different humans composed together, and he's a superhuman right. essentially, and that's a super dinosaur. It's much more heavy-handed in right. that movie. So, okay, but now we get even more characters. And I, I do want to note, even though this movie has a ton of characters, I think it handles them really well. Because sometimes movies will have too much characters, and then it's, it totally kind of, like, tanks the movie. Because it gets far too confusing. Yeah. But this handles them very well because it groups them, I would say, in meaningful ways where their characters were, like, foreshadowed beforehand and then... You know, what do you know? They end up with the people they don't really want to be with or that are forcing their relationship and connections. That's a very interesting way of looking at it, that everyone is grouped in this movie. I think I didn't really notice that until you said it. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It kind of helps out with us who are watching the movie that even though all of this is happening all at the same time, when we get to one group, it focuses on one situation. Another group focuses on a different situation. It's, yeah, I think it's handled very, very well the way that they handle all these characters because there are a lot of characters. I mean, we still have... Some, more like you said to introduce we still got sam jackson yeah. to, to talk about and it, they're all really well developed too even though they are even though they have kind of a smaller role you know what their character is about and i mean it's it's they don't do too much in the movie but they're not meant to and then the movie does a really good job at kind of keeping the balance where it's not overloading you with so many things right. because there are more important things we have to talk about it's not just about the characters it's about the ethical issues and genetics and what this what's that's going to what that's going to do, what are the consequences of that? Yeah. And the movie knows this and doesn't take its time to develop so many different characters. Yeah, you'll you'll notice It's a Mad Mad World kind of um, does the same thing. And I'm sure Spielberg had seen that because they convene like in certain points in the movie. But in order for it to work, they have to separate. Otherwise, they couldn't yeah. focus on each other. So it's a really well done story storytelling method. So I have a question. Uh, what do you think the line spared no expense means in this movie? Because it's a line that's repeated so many times. And it's very clear that we maybe we didn't spare. Maybe we did spare some expense, you know. 
Yeah, they spared some expense on these scientists because these scientists, honestly, I don't know. This seemed a little weird that Grant has nothing to do with those type of sciences, but he's able to figure out how the dinosaurs are able to reproduce. And these scientists didn't even consider it, I guess, because they're so blinded by arrogance or something. But I was a little, I thought that's a little faltering, if that makes sense. What do you what do you think, Thomas? What do you what do you think that the line spared no expense? I know that you're like a master of this movie. <laughs> uh, even spared no expense. That l- that little line that Hammond repeats throughout. Um, I think he just kind of continues to push that on people to help them remember that what he's doing is for good, maybe because spared no expense. It's like it's not. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of money to do this. It doesn't, or I mean, it doesn't take a lot of money for people to enjoy it. So when uh, when there are scenes of um, talks of them coming to the island, he said, um, "Yeah, um, I'd like to have you. I like you both. I'd like you two to come with. Spared no expense." Um, he also says it in like the final time. I think he says it is when he and Ellie are talking in the restaurant when. After she's done throwing the fit and yelling at him about his mistakes, she kind of like digs into the ice cream and says, hmm, this is good. He just kind of goes, yeah, spare no expense. Like, um, I think it's just to kind of bring people kind of closer to what he wants, maybe, um, as into everybody can enjoy this. Yeah, it's just mostly like to him, money can buy happiness and... Mm-hmm. or like you know just accumulating stuff and like the top of the line that will make everybody happy but clearly they find that is not the case at all so that's my interpretation of yep. it and right after this dinner scene <laughs> we find that john hammond invited his grandkids over before we get into this we did forget one scene and that's at the raptor pen right before the meeting where we meet robert muldoon yeah uh yeah that's been that's been going through my mind this entire yeah because that seems very important too that is very important because we're getting introduced to the head game master robert muldoon which is a super cool guy he's um, he's also very skeptical, you know, his first lines other than shoot her was, um, they should all be destroyed. So Ro- Robert Muldoon, he definitely thinks it's a bad idea too. He knows all about the Raptors from a physical standpoint, while Dr. Grant knows them in the fossilized, in the books and archeology. span Um, as before they go to the dinner scene, you see them go up and talk about basically what is going on in there. And that's when Grant asks Hammond, uh, what are they doing as they're lifting the cow over the pen and dropping it in? He's like, oh, feeding her. Then as soon as that cow is completely torn apart in there, you don't see it through the foliage that they have placed in the pen. Uh, Robert Muldoon comes in and says, they should all be destroyed. Uh, Hammond introduced the group to him, and and then we have the scene where Dr. Grant kind of talks to Muldoon uh, about um, what they how, what their characteristics and behaviors are like in the flesh because he's never seen a Velociraptor in person. Obviously, I find it interesting that now he needs to know more about these things in the flesh and how they act. So 
we have a kind of classic Spielberg scene here. What Spielberg likes to do, which I've caught on in his films, is he has different conversations being talked at the same time, like simultaneously. Like they, people talk different plot lines and like that's different parts of exposition at the same time. And you kind of have to zone in on one of them and you have to go back and listen to the other one. In this scene, he has one of these scenes. Uh, Muldoon and Grant are talking about these animals and Hammond's kind of talking to Dr. Uh, Sattler about something else. I've never zoned in on that conversation, never really had the need because all of the plot exposition, all that comes from what Dr. Grant and Muldoon are talking about, which is really important. Muldoon uh, tells Grant that they bred eight raptors total. And of these eight raptors, one took over and kind of formed a clique of a few others and they killed the rest, leading this pack of four raptors now um, on their own in there. And the thing about this, he tells Grant they're learning and they're getting smarter. And that's why Muldoon's getting really skeptical of the whole thing, kind of inching his way and saying, this is a bad idea. They should all be destroyed. So that scene's very important because it really gives us uh, an idea of the raptors. Yeah, I really enjoy that scene. And from then, they go to dinner and have those ethical discussions. And, you know, probably my favorite uh, non-action scene in the film is definitely that dinner scene. Because so much is um, unraveled there and so much comes out that makes you think. So definitely two of my favorite scenes back to back. Something, if you had the subtitles on, uh, the it says for the cow, mooing in fear. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Poor cow. The thing is getting torn apart, so I'd imagine it's fearful. Well, I did really like that scene, how Spielberg doesn't desensitize us to the violence. We still get this is incredibly violent, and the raptor death by, I don't remember his name. I, I think of him as like Crocodile Dundee. He, uh, that guy, he, it's so violent without the carnage, uh, being seen. So it's like left up to our imagination, which it just creates more fear that way. Because if we see it, then there's like really nothing to fear. But if we don't see it, then what we're going to think of is so much worse than probably what it is. We don't see those raptors till late in the film. Every single Jurassic Mm -hmm. Park film, you don't see the raptors for a while because, you know that their scenes are so intense and impactful that we're just waiting to see them. And a lot of people, like, that's what they're waiting for a a lot of the time. Like, these raptors, their scenes are so incredible and high energy. So, yeah, you don't see them yet in this scene uh, in the pen where they watch the cow uh, go in and get torn apart. You just hear everything and you can see the the foliage move. Yeah, and it's very interesting, too, because I'm bringing back that... uh that classic Spielberg of revealing information. And we, the first scene we get with the Raptors or with the Raptor, uh, it just kills one guy. We don't really see how, what exactly he does to it or what, what exactly the Raptor does to him, but we know that there's a dinosaur in there. We find out later it's a Raptor and, and that he, the guy that he, he did kill a guy or supposedly the next time we see the Raptors is when they're in the pen and we see this giant cow being lift, being lifted into it. And then we don't see what we see more foliage moving around, but we don't see the kill, like the actual kill of the cow. And when the harness raises up, that harness just ripped the shreds. And it's, like I said, it's revealing more information, slowly revealing more information until we get to 
the and, to, and then we have the next scene with the raptors is the clever girl scene where we kind of see the raptor kill the guy to, and then uh, as the movie keeps moving on we see more and more of the raptors actually being raptors i would say and they're like out for the kill and like i said just that slow reveal of information and like you said a little bit ago we ultimately get introduced to the grandkids mm-hmm who I think really work in this movie. And I did like the uh, homage to King Kong when they go through the doors finally into Jurassic Park because in the original King Kong, there was giant doors just like that meant to keep King Kong out. But in this movie, they're going into it. I thought that was a a fun reference because clearly, like in the King Kong, there are dinosaurs uh, King Kong fights the T-Rex and um, whatnot. I also thought that as they're going through the park, I did think about that, how there's probably not a high success rate of actually seeing a dinosaur. They're not, their enclosures are too big. There's too much foliage and they're not just going to come like right up to the fence the whole right. time. I thought that was Hammond. Like I said, it was more like, let's just do it and get it done. And instead of like critically thinking about what not to do, eh, it, it makes sense. And how many times have you been to a zoo and tried to look in an enclosure and not been able to see uh, anything right away? Right. Yeah. So I really, I'd really find realism in that. And it's really realistic to have them not have an eventful start to their um, little trek through the park. Um, obviously they are going to have an encounter later, but for now it definitely feels realistic. You can see the disappointment on their faces, especially Dr. Grant, when they're going past the Dilophosaurus, um, you can't see anything obviously until, until, you know, later down the road, but yeah, you can definitely, you can definitely sense the realism in that. And I think it's also quite interesting. Um, well, two things, actually. Once again, we have that Spielberg way of revealing information where uh, even this scene with him on the, in the Jeeps, it slowly builds itself until the T-Rex scene. But there's also, aside from that, there are a lot of lines, once again, from Malcolm that I just love so much. And he gets to this part um, where... He says, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man. Man destroys God, man cre- or yeah, man cre- man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. And I said in my notes, it's an endless cycle. And it kind of reminded me of the of the movie Mother, if you if you if you've seen that movie at all. Uh, it's kind of I guess I kind of pulled a little bit off of that. So it very interesting stuff that he talks about here. And then he moves from there into the chaos theory and the butterfly effect, and we sort of get more of his mathematician side of things. And it's so interesting what everything he says. I think is just so interesting. And it wasn't until this viewing that I really began to just love his character so much. Right. I definitely loved the experiment he has with Ellie and shows her. Um, exactly what it is he talks about and what he studies. I think it's really interesting, um, especially how he's flirting with her, basically, as he's doing this little experiment. Dr. Grant's obviously looking out the window, trying not to focus on it. It's when he sees the Triceratops uh, sick. But before that, you see uh, Dr. Malcolm like talk about how, um, through like the experiment of water on the hand and how... Um, you might think that the water's going down a certain way, but 
because of like I don't know the imperfections on uh, Doctor Sattler's hand or the hair, all that kind of stuff can quickly change that. It goes to show that we cannot control everything, and things that shouldn't be controlled can't be controlled. And that's what he kind of gets with, or that's what he kind of uh, displays there when he shows that experiment to Doctor Sattler. We also learn a little bit more about the chaos theory, which I was totally confused about until we learn. And he said, well, it's more so known as like the butterfly effect. Um, And I thought that was interesting because the butterfly effect is kind of popularized in a short story. I believe it's called A Clap of Thunder, something like that, where they're able to go back in time to hunt dinosaurs and they can only but they need to stay on the path. And some one of the persons doesn't stay on the path and they uh, accidentally crush a butterfly while doing that. And just by crushing the butterfly, it like totally alters the rest of history somehow. And that's kind of that chaos theory butterfly effect is there's just like and even that like water running down her hand just because of this one thing, like everything could change from there on. The, like a ripple. And I love the little bit of foreshadowing here where we see the we see Malcolm grab the cup of water and put a drop on her hand. And then later on, you yeah. know, it begins raining and because of the storm that's coming in. But then we also get that classic scene with the with the uh, T Rex where uh the water is the water is rippling and you you feel the rumble and it shakes and stuff like that. And you kinda get that a bit later, a bit of a foreshadowing element there. I just wanted to point out. Another thing that I really liked is the camera work in They're going to see the sick Triceratops. The camera comes through the grass, like kind of around Tim's ankles, his knees area. And to me, that really like kind of gave you that like childlike perspective of wonder, like, whoa, what am I about to see here? And I thought that was a really good camera choice. Uh, Also, it does, there is a question raised. How do you treat an animal that has been extinct for who knows how long I thought, well, that'd be really hard to figure out how to treat them. If that makes sense, like medically. Yeah. And here's something very interesting that I thought when this scene came up, they, everyone here is kind of really against, uh, these re- these reproduction of dinosaurs, but you're having Ellie and Dr. Grant that are still willing to help them out and, Sure. At least try and figure out why are they sick, and they at first think it's oh it's because of these it's because of this one plant that uh, that they're sick from, and so they go to look at the the poo, and then they find out there's nothing there of that, and they begin to wonder what exactly is going on here. And I, I think it's very interesting that the fact that um, they are willing to try and help out these animals, even though they are against um, against them being cloned, essentially. Also, we learned that Malcolm has three kids, and I didn't realize that because I do remember in the sequel, it focuses on Malcolm and his daughter. Now, if she's included with the three, or I think she would probably have to be. I don't think there's enough time between one and two for him to have a fourth child and her to be a teenager. No, there's definitely so no So she must be one of the that. three. Yeah. He does bring up... That he has three kids and that he's been married a few times and he's always on the look for the ex-mix of Malcolm. So Kelly, which is the name of the daughter in the second movie, um, is probably one of those kids. Um, During this time, the Lost World wasn't uh, going to be released yet. Like It wasn't, you know, in development 
yet. So when when they probably put that in the script, they probably didn't really think much of it. And finally, we get to the probably the most iconic scene in the movie, in one of the most iconic scenes in movie history, is this T-Rex scene. Oh, yes. Which is horrific. And this is, this is like when it really comes out. Like, we're getting subtle hints throughout the movie. Um, almost very similar to, I guess, a horror movie where there's like one or two very eerie things that happen and then the big thing comes. But this is very reminiscent of a horror movie. It is scary. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of the most intense scene, uh, scenes in a movie that I had ever seen as a kid. Like that, that was groundbreaking for me. That was terrifying. And I love this scene mainly because you see it through almost all perspective of the kids. Um, rather than Grant and Malcolm who are in the other Jeep. Because at this point, back with the Triceratops... Uh, Dr. Sattler stayed with Dr. Harding, the the other veterinarian that was there, uh, who dies in the book, by the way. Um, but in this scene with the T-Rex, you see almost all of it from the kids. And I love that because they're terrified thoroughly. I can sense the genuine fear in this scene. I love how the whole scene unfolds. Like, I love it. The goat is now off the chain you can see that it's not there anymore and they kind of start talking again the cup of water in the car with the vibrations which is interesting because the, the way they did that they didn't shake anything they played a guitar right above it and i think it uh don't quote me i think it was a, a note of g that made the vibrations of the water go but I love how it kind of slowly gets into this um, horror scene um, from the point where Tim uses the goggles and sees into the forest that the goat's now gone. And they're like, where's the goat? The leg falls onto the top and they look up and there it is. Gennaro takes off. You know, he's a coward. Grant and Malcolm haven't seen the T-Rex yet. They see Gennaro run into the bathroom and Malcolm says, oh, when you got to go, when you got to go. Now the T-Rex bursts through the electric lines, the fence, and now they're frozen in fear. The best part is, especially when the T-Rex kind of goes about its way, kind of kind of inspecting the area now, this new foreign area, Lex tries to get the attention of Malcolm and Grant with a flashlight saying, help. Grant says, turn off the light, turn off the light. Nope, this gets the T-Rex... Um, completely involved now in on their on their car they can see i mean the t-rex can now see them in there kind of because lex who isn't the smartest in this survival instinct that she has she she shines the light on the t-rex's face when it looks in the car and then the t-rex this scene with it roaring is so good especially when they continue to shine the light and they can't figure out how to turn it off the T-Rex then is supposed to bump the top of the car. But in production, what actually happened was it accidentally broke the glass. And so that wasn't supposed to happen. So the genuine fear in the kids is what you see. One of the things I really want to compliment is the editing. Yeah. Um, introducing the scene because, like Tom said, before we get to the scene... Uh, we see the goat and they release the goat and they're like, and nothing happens. You know, the T-Rex is just isn't around. And then 
the next time we cut back to the scene, right before we get Hammond, of course, the rain's coming down at this point, where Hammond's just like, wait, where did those vehicles stop? And it cuts to the goat. And immediately you're just like, oh no. Because previously when they introduced the goat, it was bring, it was brought up to uh, the T-Rex to try and you know get that response for the T-Rex to come by. And we know exactly what's going to happen and that we're going to see a T-Rex. And then, of course, like Tom just kind of explained, it, it builds the scene and then we get to see more and more of the T-Rex and it becomes more and more of a danger. And yeah, I, I think this scene is paced, I would say perfectly, just because of the way that it once again, introduces more information and builds and builds and builds. Other than the second movie, when it introduces the T-Rex, I don't think that this series introduces a dinosaur better than this scene. And it's just right after this scene, we jump back to Dodson, who is escaping. And I really enjoy the Dodson. Is Nedry. Dodson's. I think of the past at this point. Oh, that's right. Yes, it is Dennis Nedry who is escaping. And I always really liked that escape sequence because it's so like chaotic and hurried. And I think uh, the actor Wayne Knight is funny about it anyway. And his death is, uh, I would say it's unexpected, but I guess it does kind of make sense. There is kind of this like consequence for their actions that all go on in this movie i think that's kind of a theme that runs throughout it it's like justified almost exactly yes and i really did like uh this dinosaur is really cool and uh again we don't see the violence but i really enjoyed this scene there is a little bit of a flaw with this with the um reasoning behind it though i don't understand why there is a timetable for Nedry to I understand that the boat is leaving but why can't he just catch the next one eventually like why do they need it I I remember during their dinner discussion he has with Dogson that they're under they must be under a time crunch because even Dogson says be out of there 7 p.m sharp on the boat like he gives them a specific time to leave uh, so maybe he's just sticking to that responsibility. Like I have to get here at this time. Um, if not, I could get in big trouble. Who knows? Um, but right. that that whole scene with Nedry, like from the time he uh, shuts down to reboot the system and the phones, because they're losing power everywhere, and he is one of the big computer geniuses that does fix this kind of stuff. He, you can definitely sense his sheer panic and uncomfort when he goes to steal the embryos like he does not i mean he makes it obvious that he's about to go do something wrong they don't catch it but you know he says i'm gonna go to the vending machines i was wondering if you guys want anything i don't know because you know he just starts mumbling and then he goes to explain that uh he's debugging the system so he has to kill the power for a second and then he's gonna come back and do it after he comes back from the vending machine well he doesn't come back so they can't get in now they can't get into the power because he's got like the kill code or the password. So Sam Jackson, he tries to, but you know, you get that, ah, 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 you didn't say the magic word. And you got that little gif going on. Um, and then Nedry's gone. He takes the embryos after he kills a power and you can't uh, get caught on camera. He's gone. Uh, and then the storm kind of is a big, um, obstacle in his way. He ends up crashing, kind of hitting a tree, uh, and then getting stuck. And then, yeah, like you said, the Dilophosaurus that we hadn't seen before is now being seen. So we do get to see this animal, and it's kind of exciting. Um, 
in the book, I'm honestly, if they were to go back and I don't want them to recreate, but if they were to recreate and make an R rated version, I'd watch it because in the book, Nedry's death is probably the most gruesome in the entire, uh, entire movie or entire book. Excuse me. Uh, it is a Dilophosaurus. It is the same circumstance where he crashes the car and he's trying to get out of it. Instead, he does get uh, acid to the face, uh, but it completely burns his eyes. Like he's now completely blind. And the next thing it describes is that he feels a searing pain. I can specifically remember this because as a freshman, I loved this scene in the book. Him getting a sharp pain across the stomach and kind of doubling over and feeling like this warmth in his hands. And he realized that his stomach was just sliced open and his guts had fallen off. So obviously they're not going to put that in there. Um, so it's off screen slightly he gets in the car and he gets, you know, the acid to the face when he's in the car. Uh, and the thing just completely kills him. And that is the last we see of Nedry and the embryos. You see it falling down the little landslide slope, kind of going through the water and then completely engulfed in mud. And, that's resolved that whole issue is now resolved now we're focused on the survival of our other characters rather than nedry trying to get the embryos off the island that's done now we're focused on this new um uh, problem that's been there the entire time but now we can focus mainly on that yes it does work to kind of i guess siphon down some of the uh side plots i guess you would say they did provide the necessary intrigue but then to cut them down and provide more focus on the main characters works well so now we get the trains the train not the train the tree in the tree that is great intense action and i do really want to compliment the movie on how they're able to like constantly create intense scenes that feel like organic one after the other but then it's right after the tree scene where I feel I feel like the the pacing kind of slows down, I would say, because we go into this really I understand we probably need a peaceful moment, but all of this stuff has almost kind of felt like the climax in a way, where it's all coming to a head, but it's really not at all because even though we're an hour and a half into it, there's still like quite a number of sequences left to cover i don't know how do you guys feel once we come to this point because it feels kind of like the movie comes to a halt for a, for a little while well yeah i mean we just witnessed um Gennaro getting eaten off the toilet which is a favorite from a lot of people i know uh, a lot of people love that scene <laughs> and think it's hilarious and it's kind of if it's not too sinister to say kind of satisfying because of his annoyance of a character, but I, I can, I can see where you're getting at with the, uh, the pace kind of slowing down because yeah, like you said, they keep it going with the intensity. Like I think there is some pacing issues. I mean, what movie doesn't have its fair share of flaws. I think this is maybe where the film kind of starts to have that up until we have the Raptor scene. Yeah. In between there's some issues. I, I, I agree with you on that. And I think that, honestly, in my own opinion, I love this scene with the bronchiosaurus and them up on the tree. And the movie just kind of slows down for a bit. And maybe I'm wrong about this statement that I'm about to say, but I, I think this is what the movie may be going for. I think they're kind of showing the beauty of nature and that it's not all bad. You know, whatever whatever they, whatever Hammond's doing is, 
may not be good, but that doesn't necessarily make the nature itself bad. I think that's what I think is the reason why this entire scene exists is that we get to see this this gorgeous shot of all these bronchiosauruses just like eating off the trees and stuff like that. And it's I mean it's absolutely beautiful the way that Spielberg frames this. And we kind of get a small interaction with them. And I think that's kind of the reason why this scene exists. I actually really, really enjoy this scene because it's one of the few moments in this movie where the movie kind of slows down, not exactly not exactly hammering you with information, but not also not being something a crazy intense action scene. It just slows down just for a, a brief moment, just so you can catch your breath and realize that maybe nature isn't all bad. It's just the fact that we're messing with it. That's That's the real issue here. Not to mention that, Dr. Grant is showing this new side of him, like this protective side. Like he tells the kids, the kids, he's going to stay up all night long and watch over. And then throw, he throws the uh, fossil, the velociraptor claw that he has. He throws that because what use is it anymore? These things exist again. And I, I can see that. And I did come to that conclusion in my notes. I think, Honestly, every time I've watched Jurassic Park, I've never really cared for the Brachiosaurus scene because it is such a shift in tone from everything because we've been really building to this and then all of a sudden we shift in tone and just in general, I don't care for those scenes in movies where it's the obligatory now we rest at night and have our little heart to heart and talk like we get those in a lot of movies. I don't know. We're just an hour and a half in and I think this kind of like peaceful sequence just feels almost like a little bit misplaced for me because we got more of that awe and peaceful wonder in the beginning and now this is more of the intense action horror side and then we slow back down to it i can understand that but that's the way i feel about it yeah i would i'd like to see a lot of more intense action throughout this entire like we're on the park we got to get from point a to point b i'd love to see more of that um yeah, we do see a lot of it in the beginning. So, yeah, I can see where you get at that. I think what probably needs to happen, like what I would do is just to maybe like tighten it up a little bit is have Ellie, um, they need to go back now and Ellie needs to like get the power booted back up. And then we can still have all the rest with the kids and them running and doing whatever. But maybe cut this out. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the like the Ellie and Hammond scene. Maybe you can help me like appreciate it a little more because upon this viewing, I just felt it was kind of redundant since Malcolm already explained all this to Hammond. And Hammond, I guess like this is like Hammond now realizes it, if that's what I'm getting from it. Right. This scene specifically doesn't really go with what Hammond um Malcolm is throwing at Hammond. Now it's a heart to heart between Ellie and Hammond. And he now goes into why he did this. He didn't really do that so much in the beginning. And if he did, it was brief and it wasn't thorough or in detail for anybody to really pick up. But in this scene, they talk and he says how he comes back. He comes from Scotland, obviously. You can tell by the uh, heavy accent. He started off as a showman, basically, and an entrepreneur. He started off small with a flea circus that people would come and look at. And it gave an illusion that these fleas that are always moving around and doing their own little thing are active in there. It gave an illusion. 
So he says in this scene, yeah, it was amazing to see the faces of the people as this uh, flea circus took place that he had created. And like the, a little kid had said, look, mom, look, I want to see the fleas. And um, he got such a high off of that, that he wanted to now make something that people could physically see and touch and get move away from that illusion that something's happening, that now something actually is happening. And I think that clouded his mind almost. That clouded his mind so much that now he messed with genetics as a whole. And now power is over genetics, which it never really should have happened in the first place. Um, and he is, I think, finally starting to realize this at the scene. Um, it's not until Ellie kind of barks at him because he, he says hiring Nedry was a mistake. Obviously, he's abandoned and he can't. He's not here anymore. He's not going to help us. Hiring him was a mistake. Um, having people behind these um, these computers was a big mistake. We'll make it. We'll correct it. We'll go back and we'll do it again. And then uh, Ellie says, that's the exact same illusion that you've had. Even I was like in awe of this place and I didn't even have respect for that power. And because of that, it's out now and it's too late. And that is a very powerful point that she brings up. Even I didn't have respect for this power and it's out now. Probably my favorite um, line in this movie. One of them. Um, she really, she's emotional during this scene because now they can't, they can't take back what they've done. Now what they're worried about and what they have to try to fix is the lives of the loved ones that they haven't already lost already. And she, like Dr. Grant and the kids, uh, Malcolm, who's in kind of critical condition he's joking through the obvious i mean he's being he's being sarcastic through the entire uh scenes that he's you know after they pick him up and they have that awesome scene where the t-rex is chasing after them in the jeep her muldoon and malcolm like he's still he's still cocky and still sarcastic but she's now focused on the new problem at hand which is keeping the people they love alive because their mistakes are now on the loose and they have to fix that first so yeah that scene if that clears things up for you uh do you have any more questions on that scene because that's what i've analyzed over the years on that scene. no I, I would say that does make me feel better about that scene because especially like re-examining the part about the flea circus because the flea circus basically makes him a fraud who's just tricking people to get money whereas this he wants to do something so incredible that it's actually real and actually like bring like real joy to people and not fake joy if that makes sense so yeah i think that that does yeah. up. i think he's a crowd pleaser yeah. so he definitely wants that joy in people to be yeah. shown and i think one of the bigger things that is really comes out in this scene is that I mean, we kind of got a hint of this before, but this is when it really starts coming into play. It's not about the money. And he's he, him and is very much one to please people, as Thomas just said. He wants to he wants, he wants people to be happy and he wants to see people's dreams come true. And it kind of goes to show that Ellie kind of smacks him in the face. And he's and she says you can't mess with that kind of power. I think really what the subject of this entire scene is, is I see the, the good intentions that Hammond had. 
he had good intentions going into this, which was to create dinosaurs and make people's dreams come true. But just because they were good intentions does not mean that they were ethically sound. That's that's right. That's what I got yeah. out of this scene. Uh, something I forgot to mention is okay. We were just talking about that like Brachiosaurus scene. Well, in the book, from what I learned, there was actually supposed to be in the book. There's a river raft scene where they get in the river. And they see the T-Rex on the shore and the T-Rex gets in the river and starts swimming after them to get them. But they cut that yeah. from the movie and we kind of get that in the third one. But I think that would have continued the intense pace. I think to save time, they probably just cut that scene out completely of the script sure. if they even had that in the first place. Because if that was in there, we'd be looking at a solid two hours, probably 15 minutes if that was the case. Yeah. And I think this movie is long enough as is. If we would have had that right. in there, it would have been way too long. And once we like, once we're like done talking about the first Raptor scene, I'll bring up something I have to say. But let's let's go ahead and jump into the Raptor scene where she has to run to turn back the power on. I think this is great, and again, super horror esque feeling of most oh, yeah. dark places. Oh, yeah. And when the Raptor jumps out, wow, that is so scary. And it's real like head game, but also still like intense, like fight or flight. So well done. Yeah, because we see a little bit earlier from this scene that once when the power got out, but well, we met, before that we actually hear that the Raptors were testing the fence, right? And yeah. then that comes back later, and once the power goes out, they escape. They're out of there, and now they're loose in the park. And so then at like the worst moment possible, one shows up right when she turns on the power. I mean, that's kind of some irony just kind of written to the script right there. And yeah, this scene, it's great. And not only just uh, Ellie fighting off the raptor, but we also have uh, Grant and the two kids who have to scale the fence and walk all and go around it to get to the other side and be safe, essentially. And that's when the power turns back on. And yeah, it's, it's a great scene. Now it's not even a man versus nature. Now it's... Ellie unknowingly turning on the power, but the scene right after that with the Raptors, right as Ellie says, uh, Mr. Hammond, I think we're back in business. And then all of a sudden the Raptor bursts through the panel, basically. That's a jump if I ever saw one. That one, that one really gets me. And another thing I love is the fact that Mr. Arnold had gone to do this originally. Samuel L. Jackson's character. He originally had gone to do this, but it had been hours since he had even said anything. So that's what caused Ellie to have to go and do it. Uh, and so after she closes the gate on the um, the raptor, she kind of backs up into the pipes. And then you got the hand on her shoulder. And you're like, oh, there's Mr. Arnold. She's like, Mr. Arnold. And she pulls away. The raptors had taken off his hand. And now we just have an arm that's just somehow got stuck stuck up in the pipes that got loose when she bumped into it who knows it's a good thrill i love it that whole scene just down in that little electricity bunker like it's it's terrifying like i've even had nightmares of this whole ordeal um like running through little little uh confined spaces while there's a raptor like some kind of creature in there with me they pull it off really well and during this scene um her getting to the building in the first part is where we see the last of Muldoon when he's tells her run to the panel we're being hunted um so he stays behind to kind of watch over her and hunt down the girl uh the the velociraptor um the clever girl in this sense um and even he's outsmarted 
And that's definitely from foreshadowing earlier when he tells them how intelligent they are. Uh, he's foreshadowed his own character and, and his own demise. I love that. I really love that. Um, his his going out scene is uh, definitely a definitely a crazy one too, because it just shows you how crazy these raptors are. I uh, absolutely agree, and you can see how this could easily be rated R with just some very minor tweaks. I th- I found uh, Muldoon's death to be probably the most brutal, even though it's somewhat obscured. It was just incredibly brutal. Um, one of the questions I have is, how does Ellie hurt her leg? Because she has a serious limp, but I don't really think the movie shows how she gets that. If you watch closely, it's when she, after it jumps out and she slams the door, the raptor slams against the door and sends her flying back. So we can kind of assume that's probably what it is because that's the only visual we're given. So that's what okay. I assume it is that bruises her up. And for me, yeah, I think what both you guys said works really, really well. I do want to bring up one one thing too is how much action isn't shown in this movie because like you said, I actually forgot about uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character until you brought him up just now that, he, that that was his arm that uh, we see just lopped off. So, yeah, it's very interesting how this movie doesn't show some action. And we just, just left up to the audience's imagination to create exactly what happened. And the more information we get from how the raptors attack, then the more we can formulate, okay, this is probably how it happened. I love how much mystery there is also in this movie. So, yeah, scene's great. I love it. Okay, so I find the second raptor sequence to be... I don't know, maybe like a little bit of an overdose on raptors. And I find some of it to be a little funny just because these, just looking at the kids' facial reactions and some of their actions is, it's a little funny. Yeah. But this, okay, and I don't know how you guys feel about raptors opening door handles and they're apparently super smart, but they like run into the reflections and get caught in the fridge. So it is funny. To think that they've been testing the fence, an electric fence, but they can't, you know, tell a reflection when they see one. The yeah. kitchen scene has always been a favorite scene of mine in any movie just because of how intense it is. It's not a violent scene. It's what the scene between Ellie and the raptor in the bunker is, is um a little bit more violent and um physical than this one this is really uh an intense like sit like hold your breath scene because these two kids are in the room with two raptors and like you said with the them opening doors i never really thought about it i just i know i i pulled that along the side of their uh they're intelligent so well she was talking to the group in the control room saying um they're like are are you sure this is this raptor's contained. She's like, yeah, unless they, you know, they learn how to open doors. And then, bam, scene change to the doorknob turning to the raptors coming into the kitchen. Um, yeah, I see what you mean by um, maybe overdoing it a little bit. How I see it now is from the kid's perspective. You see a little bit more action from the rest of the raptors because you only saw one of them. Now you're seeing two of them and how they kind of interact with each other, how they hunt. Um, I don't see it as an overdose. I think if it went longer than it did, yeah, maybe an overdose. This is actually the scene that I remember the most when I first watched this movie. This is the scene that stuck with me the most. 
Looking back on it now, I do think that the T-Rex scene works a bit better in terms of intensity and building that because that's the first time we see any dinosaur being a predator at that point. And that's when at first the movie's all fun and playful and then it kind of begins, you know, with all the talks of the ethical issues and maybe it's not so playful. And now we get to this point. No, it's it's absolutely horrifying, you know. Um, but now it's solely on the children and just the children versus these raptors. And that is pretty terrifying. I will I will admit that. This scene does really work um, from a tension standpoint. I think that my, this, like I said before, this is the scene that really has stuck with me the most as I, when I was a kid, when I first watched it. It was the scene that, whenever I thought about Jurassic Park, this was the scene I kind of came back to. So yeah, I think the scene works pretty well. I guess, I don't know, maybe it could have been like an optional scene, like a deleted one. I don't really know. I guess I'm going to be more with on Corbin's side of this, where it's, it could have, I guess, been done a bit better, but I mean, what we get is still great. That, that, that's not me saying that this scene doesn't work at all, because it totally does. So it isn't long right after the second raptor scene in the kitchen when we get basically the final showdown between the raptors and the humans. And I always thought it was very fun just to kind of see the humans, uh, the humans. I mean to say Dr. Grant and crew uh, hop onto these bones that are being chased by the other two raptors that escaped. Straight and, from the control room yeah. to the lobby of this place like they they have no escape so they have to like make shift like a way through the ceiling because yeah. they're they're completely blo uh, blocked in or boxed into this control room these things are out there and they're watching them yeah and i love too how they're radioing they're talking to hammond and then the they, they f well first they they lock themselves out from the raptor who tried to get into the control room and then they start breaking through the glass and at this point they're talking to Hammond and then they of course break through the glass and then they have to drop it and then you hear the the sounds of the shotgun go off and then the scene cuts to the shotgun on the ground and the and you see that it jammed and you see the other everyone running off and climbing up the rafters and I thought that that once again we get that uh, that thing where it, he, where Spielberg is like holding off against the action. Right. And um, we don't need to see what exactly happened. We we just know that something did. And it leads up to our imagination as to what exactly did go down. And we find out not long after we see that, after we saw that shot, that both Raptors didn't die. They're, they're still very much alive. An interesting thing about that scene, um, what are you, like, what do you think Hammond was thinking when the shots go off and you can see it on his end, you can hear the gunshots on the, on the uh, radio and he just screams, don't, I think. It's almost indistinguishable. I don't know if it's like a yelp or a scream. It sounds like don't. Um, but what do you think he's screaming about? What do you, are you worried that um, he doesn't want them to kill the raptors? Do you think that the whole circumstance, I, I, I don't know what he's trying to get at because it doesn't really clear up why he screams. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And uh, I don't know, maybe he does kind of scream not to kill him because maybe I guess at this moment, there's still hope that he can keep the park alive. But once it's once it's gotten into the control room, I think that you have kind of that dichotomy of now the dinosaurs are in control. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing to say, but I think that that's kind of what the scene is going for is now the raptors have made it into the control room. That's that's basically it. They, the park's over now. You, you, you can't get anywhere past that. I think that's kind of what I was getting out of it is that um, he didn't want them to die, but now it's too late. They've made it right. in. Yeah, I think at this point in the movie, Hammond is completely um, aware of the issue and how what he had done is obviously 
completely wrong and has affected a few people. So yeah, I think that's like kind of the breaking point. Like, and he's, he's just, he's just down on it now. Yeah. And so obviously right after that scene, after they make it through the ceiling, the gun jams, they go through the ceiling, they face some obstacles. Lex almost falls through the, we have a little thrilling scene where they pull her up right before the Raptor jumps up and gets her. Uh, they make it out, they get to the lobby, and they do this fun little scene where they jump on the bones of the big display dinosaur skeleton, and it comes apart, essentially. And when this happens, the raptors are all over the place. There's like three of them um, at this point, because the other one's contained, if you remember, in yes. the uh, bunker. Um, it comes down, and right as they're they get up and right as they're about to be pounced on, they're like all surrounded by these three Raptors, Dr. Grant, Dr. Sattler, Lex and Tim. They're all surrounded. And it looks like this is it. Like they're, they're, they're done. Um, but you have that classic last second resolving, um, act where the T-Rex comes in right as the Velociraptor pounces and it ends up killing the Raptor by, you know, chomping down on it. Uh, the other raptor completely has its detention off of the other kids and the and the and Dr. Grant and Dr. Sadler, and goes for the T Rex now. Well, now there's a little fight going on in the lobby, and it gives our protagonist a chance to escape. Uh, that whole scene is intense, and I really, really like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This scene's honestly it kind of raises the question of how did the how did the T Rex get in there? But at yeah. this point in the movie, I could care less. Yeah, honestly, like. How do you not see a giant twenty-five foot predator make its way into the uh, make its way into the lobby? I mean, we do kind of see that in the second movie. Yeah, with one of the characters, he uh, makes it into uh, one of our um, enclosed areas. We'll we'll elaborate that on that when the second review comes out. Yeah, but he doesn't he doesn't hear the T Rex come into the room. Um, so maybe you can, ref you can kind of t piece by piece, like see the, the T-Rex can kind of make its way in silently if it really needs be, if it's hunting. Yeah. But like I said, we don't want to like analyze that too much because it's not huge. It just shows, Hey, I'm here. I'm here to take out these Raptors. Like this is it. Um, and you know, we're not seeing the T-Rex as a hero because it doesn't really, it's not there to help the humans. It's just there to hunt. Yeah. So it's just like all luck. It's all a good sense of timing and it's super, super thrilling. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. And I love how it, it kind of goes to show that nature is going to do its own thing. Right. You know, and we see, yeah, the T-Rex kind of break it and basically save the day. I, it's so cool. Cause now this, this is the first time in the movie and the only time in the movie where we actually see dinosaurs fighting each other and yeah you see the t-rex he grab the last one he has he grabs the the last raptor and just throws him into the remaining bones and then he just then of course the banner starts falling down and you hear that famous roar and it's just oh it's so cool just to see that you know it's it's maybe not even very plausible that he made it in there but at this point like i said before i don't really care it's just too awesome not to mention with that banner coming down it says when dinosaurs ruled the earth yes like it just shows you they're back, and it's kind of terrifying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the fact that uh, basically the first dinosaur to attack was the T-Rex, and the last dinosaur to attack was the T-Rex. Right. Yeah, that kind of coming, that full circle. And then, yeah, after this, everyone runs out to the, the escape helicopter, and uh, Hammond has a very 
very good line that kind of goes to show that he has changed his ways and that he basically says that this park's over. Right. Uh, they make it out and lo and behold, Hammond and them are right outside the door. They like just pulled up um, to get them and take them to the helicopter. And Dr. Grant says, after much thought and consideration, I have decided not to endorse your park. And Hammond responds with, so have I. Something you were not expecting him to say. Mm-hmm. Because he was so positive on this entire idea um, and trying to manipulate everybody's ideas to say, no, this is a good idea. This is this, Everybody's going to love this. Yeah. But no, people, people perish through this idea. And he's finally come to this understanding that, nope, this was a bad idea. Uh, I'm not going to continue with this. Yeah. We will see Hammond, though, again. And kind of thinking forward to this, um, the fifth movie, I'm the only reason I'm really excited for it is because it's rumored that Jeff Goldblum is going to be in this movie. That'd be interesting. So Dr. Malcolm will probably make his return in this movie, and I'm I'm curious to see what he's doing because I know from the fourth movie they were thinking about bringing the group back. However, they didn't want to because they don't want the whole atmosphere of Jurassic Park to only be the bad luck of a certain group of people. And I respect that. From from there, yeah, it's a – I would say it's a really solid ending and I, I enjoyed how it ended. So, Alan, Thomas, what is your rating and recommendation for Jurassic Park? Alan? So, yeah. Honestly, Jurassic Park is a – it deserves all the love that it gets. It This time around, with me really focusing on what exactly the movie is trying to say, what the message is with the silver screen guy goggles on, I really got a sense of what exactly this movie is saying. And I got a lot more out of it this time than I had previous times past. And even discussing it once again, like I know we've mentioned this before in podcasts, so discussing it, we get even more out of it. And yeah. This discussion of power, this discussion of ethics in terms of genetics, cloning, all these themes, I think are very relevant themes and one that's even more alive now than it is than it was when the movie came out. And I think that that's even scary in and of itself. And I think that the movie does a really good job at handling all of these themes. And like we had mentioned earlier, all these different characters are handled really, really well. And even though there's a lot of them, they don't ever become confusing. And I think that that's very important for a movie like this to have. I think Spielberg does a great job on this. I I really don't have very many complaints. All the ones I really have are just nitpicks. I know we all kind of talked about those different things. You know, there isn't really anything that is fundamentally broken in this movie. I mean, there what else, what could be is a Spielberg film. You know, I mean, anyways, it, when it's all said and done, this movie does bring up some really interesting ethical issues, and I'm glad we got to talk about some of those. And I'm, I'm glad that this movie really had really was able to bring it up and not not only become like a really engaging and thoughtful movie, but also one that was very fun and made the movie talking about cloning animals a lot of fun. So in the, at the end of the day, Jurassic Park is an awesome movie. It deserves all the love that it gets because it is just that cool. Um, seeing the T-Rex and everything come to life and seeing the technology um, displayed in this movie used in this way where it's not a gimmick it's it's used in the animatronics the switch between the animatronics and the dinosaurs is almost seamless at times and it does a such a great job at utilizing everything around and its power to create this world and so yeah 
uh, I'm gonna give Jurassic Park a nine out of 10, high recommend. I mean, if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? You know, as one of those things. I grew up with this movie. It is one of my all time favorite movies, as we have said. Um, just because I grew up with it, it that kind of plays a big factor as to what I rate this movie. Um, I actually got IMDb just to be able to rate movies like this. And Jurassic Park, fun fact, was the very first movie I rated on this, uh, on this website. What Alan had said, this movie is, I think, timeless. I love this movie. I love what it did, I mean, what Spielberg did with it, um, how he was able to make this cinematic adventure out of a really compelling and really confusing at times book. The book is very, very science-driven, and it's very hard to understand a lot of the times. I think it's it's definitely an adult read, um, unless you're a, a really fully committed high school, college student. Um, that book is hard. Um, but I stuck with it, and, you know, the parts I picked up... Um, I like the movie better. I and that's that's weird because I've always liked books better than the movies. This movie does an amazing job uh, storytelling. It has great characters, great message behind it, um, and a great score too. Obviously, um, it's very very inspiring to me. Um, it makes me as a composer want to make music and film score that is memorable, timeless, and able to be like depicted immediately. Like to be able to think, Oh yeah, that's, that's the Jurassic park theme or that's the jaws theme or <sighs> Spielberg does a great job. And he brings in great people like Williams to create the score. Uh, great cinematographers, great screen players. He has a great team. So overall I give Jurassic Park a 10 out of 10 just because it plays all that good factor towards me. And I, I love it as a movie. I love it, what it does with the storytelling. I don't have much problems other than the nitpicky stuff like Alan had said. There's really nothing crazy about it that makes me like give it a thumbs down at all. It's always intrigued me, always has, always will. I'll be showing it to my kids when I'm older. Um, I give it a 10 out of 10 and I highly recommend it. And if you haven't seen it, Yes, see it. Make time to see it. It's worth it. It's in a great movie. I was really, uh, really blown away upon this viewing of the movie with how well the movie is paced, with how well the characters are handled, and with just how incredible and jaw-dropping the action and effects are and how you're sucked into it. And this movie is definitely an icon of cinema history. I am so impressed with Steven Spielberg bringing this movie to life. This is what like movie magic and the movies are all about is transporting you to another world. And Jurassic Park definitely transports you to another world. And it is an incredible thrill ride. And I, I love it. So that's why I'm giving Jurassic Park 9 out of 10. Very, very high recommend. One of the highest recommends. So thank you, Alan and Thomas, for joining me on this retrospective and upon the initial review for Jurassic Park. I uh, really enjoyed hearing both of your thoughts, and I think we all brought some really good discussions to the table and different thoughts. So thank you guys for joining me. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much for having me on. I had a blast. Uh, this definitely opened up a lot of different doors to the movie that I have kind of overlooked, but it was fun to discuss them with you guys. Absolutely. So listeners, make sure to subscribe because we will be bringing you more reviews in the Jurassic Park series. 
and we're doing a number of retrospectives, go to the website and look at the schedule and make sure to check out our uh, 2018 update podcast where we talk about the schedule and everything else we're doing for this year. And uh, we're really excited to bring you more reviews. And uh, like I said in the beginning, this is leading up to the release of the new Jurassic World sequel that we will be uh, reviewing when that comes out. So make sure to stay tuned for all of those reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. No one's wanting to go up against Spielberg. Oh, Spielberg. No one's really wanting to go up against Spielberg. So it isn't long after this first raptor... Freaked me! Oh! <laughs> I was... Did it again! <laughs>